Indigenous people across the globe have used sacred plants and animal medicines for millennia to heal, illuminate and connect them to the web of life. Traditionally, each culture had a healer that works on behalf of their patients, what we call the shaman. And now we find ourselves in a global village. Is it any wonder that we need our own healers that understand the deep power and sacredness these ancient earth medicines can reveal? My name's Rakrazam, and I'm an author, filmmaker, and shamanic facilitator. Join me as I interview and sit in ceremony, experiencing healing medicines with Western shamans across the globe. Watch firsthand as I document a modern shamanic resurgence being passed on from indigenous tribes to a new wave of medicine people working in the 21st century. They had a completely different worldview, I guess, than we do nowadays after a few generations of Richard Nixon's instigated war on drugs. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grammarica Show. We are going to be chatting with Niles and Rack a little bit later uh, about psychedelics and festivals and shamanism and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, Niles's audio does get a little sketchy from time to time. And a uh, long time coming, we got RPJ is going to join us for the intro here and uh, and uh, say hello again. Uh, but of course, as always, the one and only ground beefcake Dunlop. How's it going? Good. <laughs> How are you doing? Good. You <laughs> get so excited. Let's <laughs> come to that. <laughs> I throw in the beefcake whenever I want to cheer him up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, good to hear you hear your voice again, Red. Yeah, nice to be back. It was a long time ago since uh since we last convened for a Grimerica recording and I really miss talking to you guys. Yeah, we miss, it's funny, I've been thinking lots about you and and then Darren says, Oh yeah, I talked to you the other night, so I'm glad. And it's funny, this episode is actually quite appropriate because these guys were on talking about their documentary. Um, that's Niles Heckman and Rack Razum about uh, shamans of the global village. And the first episode was about, um, Darren, wasn't it about the Mexican, the toad in, in, the toad. in Mexico, right? The, uh, the, secretion, the secretion from it. Are you sure it's from Mexico? This, this no. Is, not for, is, in, is no, it not from it actually, Brazil? No, no, it's not from that far... Uh, he's not I'm, sure. Now I feel like I'm fucking <laughs> losing it. It's been a couple of weeks since we chatted with him. What was it's in the Sonoran Desert? Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. is the Sonoran okay. Desert? Okay, yeah. That's Makes in Mexico, sense. right? Sure, sure. You know, yeah, my four, the, five-year-old border, daughter yeah. could tell me where the Sonoran Desert is for sure. Sure, sure. We're all the, the we're all the rapists and all the the <laughs> Muslim terrorists are are you know, crossing. 
and drug to dealers. The US. Don't forget yeah, drug yeah. dealers. So they're so they're now using the toads, obviously the psychedelic toads, as also as weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> you sense. better watch out. It's total sense. <laughs> you better watch out. You don't want them to start calling those toads WMDs, or they'll be coming. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That was a nice little rant. They yeah. do they do have to be careful when they're they're the part where they get the secretion from the toads is sort of controlled by the drug drug lords. So it is a tricky, tricky scenario. Because you have to sneak into cartel land. Is that cartel land, Red? Sonora? Sonora Desert? Oh yeah, yeah. Well it's so big, you know. I guess it's <laughs> it's no man's land. <laughs> It's probably where a lot of bodies are buried, I bet. There's some pretty good healing going on. You down can OD on Toad, I think. So you gotta watch. Obviously that. it's Son- Sonora is with the the alleged the legendary uh Mexican shaman Don Juan Matus used to live. You know, he was supposed to be a, a Yaqui Indian and that's where where Carlos, Carlos Castañeda, used to drive from Los Angeles to to meet with him. But uh, I don't know, it's, it's the first time that I heard of of, of the use of, of toads there in order to elicit entheogenic trips. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's gonna be quite, uh, I think it's gonna be quite um, important coming up in the... It's, it's it's an interesting synchronicity because I was li- listening to I've been listening to all the episodes of Mysterious Universe, and the one that I was listening to just uh, today in the afternoon was when they t- were talking about uh, Sapo, this uh, this uh, um, psychedelic substance that they extract from from a, an Amazonian toad, and a tribe uses uses it in order to, uh, I don't know, ha- have trips, in order to also to give them like more acute senses and also even precognition. They like, they know where to find uh, game in the jungle, you know? So instead of being looking around, you know, all day for the animals and, uh, and tracking them as, you know, for, for their or the scat or the tracks in the ground or whatnot, they, they this substance like open their 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 perceptions and they they know where to find them, allegedly. Wow, yeah, this is the Sonoran Desert Toad, I guess, which is also called the Bufo. The yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah, just lick his back. You should head down there, Red. Give it a lick and record yourself. Oh man, I, I don't think I would be strong just enough. Just fucking to do dump that, right know? into the deep end of the pool. <laughs> oh no, that's you really need to be in some kind of really. I don't know. I could just picture you like coming to the jungle with like long hair and an acoustic <laughs> guitar. <laughs> yeah, we can't stop here. This is Toad Country. <laughs> Oh, your fear of uh, <laughs> your fear of all your jobs going back to the states will disappear. <laughs> Toad harvest. Wasn't it the other way around? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess it works both ways. Yeah. 
but it works both ways and it's gonna be there's gonna be we're definitely going to live into very interesting very tr- interesting times in the years to come you know that's that's for sure is there is there a different uh way that the mexicans uh legalize their drugs down there like because it's still really strict against some drugs right but are i thought i've heard of other stuff like ibogaine and other things down there being used in treatment programs so i wonder if if like the the categorization is different from canada and the states i don't know let me check ibogaine legal in mexico i'm not sure But yeah, I, f- I feel like there's like they're l- they're less strict on like proper psychedelics as opposed to just lumping anything that's not fucking sold through a pharmacy as illegal. Mm. Well, there's a lot of you know uh, herbal, you know folk, folk remedies that are being sold. You know, in, in markets. Yeah, I mean things. You know, old wives remedies. You know. You know the herbal based stuff, like the is, eye of newt. I guess I'm not, I'm not what I don't know what that is. I'm just kidding. I and know, yeah, and I, and I know there's a lot of uh, evil gain centers. What's in that Mexico. shit for again? It's also for addiction, or that's oh. what I think that's what it's being used for. And although, although, to, although to be honest, I think this is more for. You know, for American tourists than for for Mexican regulars. You know, the fact that that I'm reading this and it's the play, the page is in English instead of you know having the chance to read it in English and in Spanish makes me think that the market is more like based or more focused on on of American tourists who travel to Mexico in order to get the treatment that's probably being restricted in, in in the United States. I don't know. I mean, I've never, I've never heard of, of uh, any kind of like, what's the, like the Mexican government's uh, posture regarding Ibogaine. You know, I don't think they pretty much care. Yeah. I know that, yeah. that probably, they're probably more, they're more centered in, 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 in trying to ban things like, you know, cannabis and LSD and, and the, 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 the the usual stuff, right? They probably, if you go to to the guy in front uh, uh, that is like in charge of of the drug war in Mexico, you probably you mention ibogaine, and he probably is going to go what? Yeah. <laughs> Ibo what? Yeah. Ibo what? <clears throat> so you're catching up on old MU episodes. I sure yeah, I'm trying to. Right, anything you're interested in lately? To. Like anything else? Uh, podcast wise or just no, topic 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 wise is Aaron oh. still on MU what is Aaron still on MU what the, the old episodes the new ones oh yeah no he's he's talking about the old ones I'm talking about the new no, I'm ones. still um, <laughs> in the ones that from September man September it's gonna, take, it's gonna to take me it's gonna take me a while to catch up because there was a time back in the day when I used to listen to at least three or four podcasts a day. And yeah. In my old job, it was no longer the case. I, I could only listen to podcasts during my commutes. I couldn't listen to them while I was at the office because, you know, there was always this, like, 
nagging anxiety that <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you put on your headphones, you know, someone is going to call you and, or ask you a question and you're not, you know, <laughs> like you turn around and you see that your boss is like, is like, you know, has been sitting, has been standing right in front of you, like for the last five minutes, you know, just like watching you jiggle or giggle or something for something that you were listening on the, in the, in the podcast. Nice. So that's why I cut back on my podcast listening and I'm trying to catch up. It's too much, eh? Yeah, yeah. There comes a time when you say, well, you know, I'll have to be more selective even if, even if I don't want to. Yeah, that becomes a problem. Like, mm -hmm. I can only listen to so much, you know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky I can get probably... I can do in a good week, I can do 12 or, you know, 15 hours of audio. Okay, here's a million dollars idea. As, as there's, there's the Reader's Digest, right? You know, this, this uh, pocket size magazine that is supposed to be a, as a digest of many publications. That should be the podcast digest. You know, like someone listen to all this stuff. And giving you like snippets, you know, the best, the best thing that uh, uh, that's out of those podcasts, like in fifteen minutes instead of two hours. Oh, like a, yeah. Uh, well, I think I've seen. You someone mean like an audio that. one, though? Like an audio one? I've seen someone do sure. best ofs, where they take clips. Ah, that's a good idea. But I mean, what an undertaking! Sure. I mean, if you're listening to them all anyway, the whole. But you crap. can't. You need a team of tons of people. It'd have to be some sort of like, uh, you know, user-based interface. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe so much. Who knows what you'll end up with. It's a good sure, idea. Sure. It is a good idea. There are tasks and there are jobs in which, unfortunately, you are not able to like kick back and put on your headphones and listen to a good podcast. You just can't because maybe probably, you know, if you are into customer service, you definitely shouldn't put on your headphones, you know, because you're not going to perform your, your job well. It's, it's only when you know you're not going to be disturbed that you, that what you, the, the task at hand is not, is not so uh, demanding that you really have to concentrate 100% what you're doing, you know? I mean, something like writing, writing a, uh, an article or a blog, I, don't, I can't even concentrate if I'm listening to, to, to a song, you know? It has to be uh, music without any voices. Yeah, I know what you yeah. mean. It's good yeah. for like you're doing. I do. I listen when sometimes when I'm doing the dishes, or if I'm cooking when I'm around the house, or if I'm doing work. Exactly. Work. You go for a walk. You're, you're mowing the lawn. You're walking the dog. Things like that is when it's great to have the podcast experience. Podcasts are the shit. We rely on podcasts for this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So any topics interesting? I haven't listened to lately? fucking MU in so long. I should go back. You know, I listen. You don't know if you guys uh, catch that uh, New York Times article from November, November the third about how 
the promise of genetically modified crops, you know, has been kind of like finally come to an end. You know, they forget for the longest time the 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 the, the struggle or the or the focus of the GM crops debate was whether they could be harmful for for humans, you know, and that's why they should, the, the people were so uh, obsessed with the proper labeling of, of, of foodstuffs that were made or based by GM, GM crops. But there was this article from the New York Times written by Danny Hakim who says that, you know, whereas in Europe, uh, GM crops were not like fully embraced as much as in Canada and the United States, after 20 years of so, you know, once you crunch, crunch the numbers or, or make comparisons, the yields in crops from the United States and Canada are not, are, they're pretty much the same as the ones they have in, 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 in Europe. And the thing is that in Europe, they, they don't use as, as, many, as much herbicides on the crops as they do in, in the United States. So in the end, the only thing they were good of for the GM crops was they could withstand the use of more herbicides, but they didn't like yield like uh, more uh, larger crops. You know, so in the end, so what's the deal? I mean, weren't these supposed to be the wonder foods that would feed a growing population in the 21st century. That was the promise. I mean, the idea that with GM crops, you will be able to have you know, double or triple uh, the amount of, uh, of crops, which was supposed to be So you can offset the necessary. cost of the seeds that you have to rebuy every year. Sure. So in the end, I mean, it's it only... It turned out to be a giant scam. Well, yeah, it's only only Monsanto, you know, and, and, and Bayer and all these giant companies get benefit from it. And and we've discussed this, you know, on other occasions. I think that I have stated my opinion that, you know, GM crops, I wasn't that against them, you know, because of, of the fear that they could be, they could proven to be, you know, harmful for, for human consumption. But in the end, if they are no better uh, than you know regular crops, in order to 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 increase the yield, you know of, of agricultural production, then <laughs> okay. And, and 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 also like like you said, you know you have to take into account that the, the seeds you, the farmers cannot reuse them for the next season and all of that. And they also have to use the herbicides that are being, you know, that these seeds have been like uh, modified against. Of course, those herbicides are also provided by the same companies. So, wow, I mean, it, it really means that we should rethink about this whole thing, you know, and say, you know, it's a good thing that, that there's been this uh, general outcry against companies like, Monsanto, especially in Europe, and I wish that something like that keeps uh, going on, and more so in in the American continent. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. They they seem to be controlling so much these big companies. I mean, there was a media 
uh, blitz on an article. Do you remember this one, Darren? A few few months ago, it was in Canada, I believe. Uh, some scientific report coming out that GMOs are not as dangerous as uh, everybody thinks. And it was like when you dug into the con the the actual structure of it and the con or the content of the study it was pretty much bullshit but they just started you know the headlines were just you know everybody everybody had to cover it for you know a few days and uh, that's all it takes to all of a sudden just say oh well, the, you know this article came out and it says it's okay but really when you dig into the details of it it was bullshit sure and the article didn't mention one what what i think is the worst thing that has come up out of uh, of uh Monsanto's monopoly, which is obviously the the increasingly worrying decline of bee population, you know, globally, which I think that I think it's fair to say, you know, I mean, I, I don't think it's you know uh, far fetched to claim that it has been proven that there's a direct link between the use of these pest herbicides and pesticides. And, and the declines of, of, of bee colonies, which are necessary for also for the pollination or other, of other uh, crucial uh, crops throughout, you know, the industrialized world. Well, I think there's only really the big four in Canada, right? Corn, canola, soy, and sugar beets. Really? Stuff that's important. What about all the stuff really that the we have that, that we in our, are in our? Yeah, I mean, there's so much stuff in our stores that are. It's hard to know whether it's GMO or not. I mean, I don't even know. I'm if, pretty good. I mean, the thing is, if even if they won't legislate them to label GMO, the like half the grocery store now has a certified non-GMO label. Sure. I mean, yeah. So they're working. They're just doing it the opposite way. They'll tell you that they're not GMO which is an easier process to get than organic and boom, 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 boom. And then when we go through the grocery store, if, you know, if there's one there that has a non-GMO on it, I'm grabbing it. Yeah. Sure. And there is a big, big movement back to cooking your own, cooking your own, I mean, growing your own food. And it does, I hope that continues. Buying mm -hmm. more, buying well, more locally and organically and cooking your own food or. I cook my own food in, all the time. Obviously in big cities like Mexico, that's, that's a, uh, Difficult proposition. Even though I've seen, I've noticed how the, the 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 local authorities are trying to promote, you know, how consumers get uh, they, to, they get to consume uh, from from local crops, you know, things that are actually grown, if not in Mexico City, at least you know, in the periphery of Mexico City, you know, some local local crops that uh, you know that. Uh, seasonal seasonal things you know so, and i'm for locally you know you could see more of that you know developing as you know it, it just makes sense you know i think that even even from a from the point of view of uh logistics uh sure and also i guess the the, the experience i guess of i've always wondered of, of, i've always wanted the experience of growing my own food of growing something that that I can uh, that I can then uh, taste or enjoy, you know, in a particular meal and and say to people, hey, you know, this thing that you are tasting, I actually grew it, you know, I actually take took care of it, you know, from from beginning to end. 
So you guys don't, do you guys have GMO? No. Yeah, well, it's um, it's an interesting story. You know, there's been very a lot of pushback. To the, uh, the government has always tried to give license to Monsanto to... to yeah, because Monsanto is just their, greasing them all. The GM crops, but there's been a lot of pushback from local farmers, you know, to try to reject that. And apparently, let me see if I can find this story. You know, there was a story of of farmers, bee growers in in Yucatan who who managed to to make uh, Monsanto lose. Um, a case court. Yeah, this is a story f- that was published in The Guardian in August August 8th of 2014. Yeah. So uh, beekeepers in Mexico la- managed to make Monsanto, Monsanto lose their their permit to grow uh, GM soybeans. So yeah, there's one. That's one example, you know, and and, and there's a lot of a, a lot of uh, people who push against uh, the introduction of GM, you know, crops, especially corn. I mean, think about it. I mean, corn is well, not pun intended, but it's the cornerstone, the cornerstone of of Mexican diet. I mean, corn fr- came from Mexico. So May- maize came from Mexico. That. That's how important it is. I mean, even 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 when you go back to 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 the mythologies of the the original inhabitants of this land, you know, I mean, the Mayas believe that the gods have made human beings out of out of uh, corn dough, dough. No, <laughs> so 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 there's that. You know, the 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 the, the, the people who are trying to maintain very uh, exclusive and very uh, local strands of corn, you know, to, to preserve them and protect them. And and the only way to do that is if you uh, ban the introduction of, of GMs, GM strands, you know. That's crazy. And, so, so you guys in Mexico have, have done a way better job at... At blocking all this than than the states in Canada, like we're just well, it's probably a losing battle, you know. I mean, the, because well, Clearly. maybe it was a, a losing battle on, up until now, you know, because now we can people who reject Monsanto can go and use articles such as the one that I just read and said, but look, you know, in the end, it's not worth it. It's not worth give these guys, you know, carte blanche and introduce. These GM strands that, in the end, are not really making the job. You know, I think there are better ways to secure and sustain a growing population. Uh, there's, for example, this scientist. I'm going to look uh, green revolution. There was a science, uh, a foreign scientist, who came to Mexico in the 1930s and 60s. Let me see. I'm reading the Wikipedia page. Okay, Norman Borlak, the father of the Green Revolution, received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970. 
70, did a lot of work in Mexico, you know, trying to install, you know, uh, farming procedures, you know, that were very, very revolutionary, you know, I guess, hence the name, and that which helped, you know, uh, feed the world on a time which, when many people uh, thought that overpopulation were, was going to bring about uh, uh, quite uh, Malthusian, you know, uh, future, very apocalyptic. I mean, remember, this is the time of, of the movie Soylent Green, when mm-hmm. people thought, Soylent okay, Green so... Is people? The Soylent Green is people. This is for, that movie is from the 1970s. Kind of feels very Christian at, in the, nowadays, but there was this fear, you know, the, the world keeps getting, you know, bigger and bigger, where sooner or later we're not going to have enough food food to feed the population, so maybe you will, people will start going, are going to start uh, eating each other. But thanks to the efforts of, of people like Norman Bur- Burlak, you know, that didn't happen because he went to Mexico, he came to Mexico, then he went to India, and he, you know, freely gave advice to all these farmers on how to increase the yields of the crops. No Monsanto or no GM uh, uh, technology involved. You know, I guess it was just, I don't know, ingenuity. And in my humble opinion, what was key is was that he was freely uh, just sharing this, this technology with the, with the farmers. He wasn't charging anything, you know. He was giving them, you know, free advice, obviously at the, at the behest of the government who had invited him. But, I mean, if you think about it, I think I've, I've made this comparison before, but Norman Burlak was for the uh, agriculture uh, business like Linus Torvald, you know, with Linux. And Monsanto is Microsoft. Monsanto is the old, the old way of doing things, of thinking that you need to monopolize the market, you need to put you know, a, a, a copyright on everything you do because that's the only way you can make a profit. And, and I think that this needs to change, especially when, you know, the livelihood and the survival of, of people in, in developing countries is involved. Especially when they get caught for doing these things and, and, this, uh, and they just get fined, right? Nobody goes to jail. There's nobody really getting in trouble. They just get a slap on the wrist and... Chop off his head. I heard about some. some, I don't know if it was a bank or a big company like Monsanto, where they got a a two percent of the profit they made on this crime. That was their fine. (laughs) Sure, it's less than a tax. Yeah, oh, tax probably. I I think that that it's going to change. And what and what you need to do is to try to. I guess you know this. This is probably my naive, idealistic thinking. But if you inform the public and you and you say, well, this. You know, Dorito that you want to eat actually was that came from from a crop that was raised from a Monsanto seed. And look at what has what has happened with local farmers thanks to this. You know, now are you sure you want to buy this bag of Doritos instead of maybe buying another bag that may be you know fifty cents uh, more expensive, but that actually you know promotes the work of local farmers who are using, you know, uh, better 
farming techniques that are, you know, gentler to the land, that, you know, produces less less pollution, whatnot, yada, yada, yada. You know, we have the technology to to empower consumers in that way. It's just it's just a matter of consumers to start giving a damn about yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, happening. I think it's happening. Mm-hmm. Do we got do we got some uh, time for a couple of listener emails? Sure. Sure. So I got uh, I got one that's kind of appropriate for for uh, this episode. Is it jingly? Well, it's kind of jingly. I mean, it, it's kind of a trip report. Maybe that uh, Terrence McKenna one would be good. The psychedelics are catalysts of consciousness. That's a great jingle, hey. Speaking of, speaking of which, before you read the the the, the comment, uh, have you guys uh, watched Doctor Strange? No, not yet. Dude, go yeah. see it. If you are into turns, McKenna stuff, you're into all those. Really? Yeah. Stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I will you for sure. You have to go see it, Doctor Strange. Huh? Go, there are some no, no, no. scenes no. in that movie that. If you haven't, if you have never tried psychedelics, you say, "Okay, so that's how the machines look like." And you probably, if you have taken uh, psychedelics, you probably say, "Yeah, these guys got it right." <laughs> wow! Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. What mm-hmm. is it? A movie? What's it's, it called? It's a doc. It's like a Marvel movie, isn't it? Like a sort of a superhero yeah. one, Doctor Strange. So it's not Strange yeah, Love it's, or whatever. It's, so, it's Strange. Yeah, Doctor Strange is superhero, but it's like a more of a. More of a Buddhist kind of Buddhist, like uh, yeah, mystical. Yeah, it's like yeah. the mystical, mm. the mystical side of of, of Marvel. Yeah. If you guys, I, I, if you guys uh, have never read the the move the book Mutants and Mystics by Doctor Jeffrey Kripal, I cannot recommend that book highly enough. Please, you know, go to Amazon right now. You know, you know, take advantage of the Black Friday deals. Get that book and also get uh, Authors of the Impossible by him. You know, that you won't regret it. I'll, I'll uh, put a link in the show notes to, to it for people. Right. Yes, you will. What's okay. the email say? So this is from uh, this is from Reed. It's a spam gram email. Reed from Nebraska. We love to hear from our listeners' uh, stories and encounters of the strange, lucid dreams, trip reports, all that stuff. Email Graham at Gramerica dot com. Gramerica. Gramerica. Slip of the tongue. That might be Freudian slip. I wonder if Grab uh, America is available where we could register it from when I kick you off the island. So it says, he says, uh, Dear Graham, this past summer I stumbled upon the Grimerica show during the beginning of my awakening. This awakening started while microdosing magic mushrooms for about two weeks straight. The doors of perception seemed to come swinging open and I started to question everything. I'm a 22-year-old college student, so this was something quite profound to be asking all these big questions at such a young age already. Luckily, I've had the time lately to devote to delving fully into my newfound passions and interests. I've been able to start on a new path of self-development, integrating these revelations, and I think that mushrooms have helped me get rid of a long-lasting depression. Since then, I've gone down the rabbit hole on many topics, including ancient civilizations, conspiracies, psychedelics, consciousness, resonance, and vibrations, etc. Along the way, the Grimerica show has been one of my main tools for awakening, and I feel deeply grateful for all that you guys have done. I'm still working my path, 
my way back through the back catalog, and I can't wait to get my mind blown with every episode I listen to. I hope I make it up your way one day so I can meet you guys. I'd love to sit in the igloo and medicate with Darren while playing the chemtrails jingle on repeat, much to Graham's disapproval. This is... This is a this is a bucket list type material that only fellow Grimerica listeners can appreciate. Anyways, don't change a thing, you guys. And a donation is heading your way soon. That's Reed from the Nebraska. He says, "P.S. Interested if you guys have done much looking into bioacoustics research." Shari Edwards of Sound Health Options has done a lot of great work using her talents in developing software to break down the specific frequencies of the human voice. Using this information, she can tell a lot about personality and if people are telling the truth. Also, the cause of chronic conditions and illnesses can be pinpointed using the vocal profile and can be used as a tool in sound healing. Mm. Hey, thanks, Reed. Yeah, sounds good. I'm going to look into that. Absolutely. And yeah, come on by the igloo if you're ever in town. And yeah, if you haven't checked out the back catalog, you should, because there's uh, about a hundred and... You know, 90 some odd episodes. I think this episode's actually number 199. So yeah, next week's 200. Wow. We've, we've planned nothing as usual. Um, <laughs> but uh, when I first read this, I, I thought it said meditate with Darren, oh. but it says medicate the second time around. We might be able to slap Yeah, that makes more sense. <laughs> but anyway, speaking of the back catalog, um, those episodes are all free. And uh, we have taken a vow of no paywalls and everything else. So. If you do, uh, you do find some value in the content that we've listened to, then you should, uh, if you can do so like Reed, find it in your heart to help us out monetarily. You can go to grammarica.ca slash support. There's going to be a bunch of different options there for a monthly subscription, anything from a buck a month to 30 bucks a month, which are all, I might add, less than the price of a cup of coffee a day. And uh, if not, you can review the show that helps. You can spam Gram helps. You can... Uh, Sign up for the newsletter. All that stuff is in the show notes, of course, and that's just how you can help us keep this truck rolling along. Yeah. Otherwise, it, it starts to bind up <laughs> without grease in the wheels, yeah, you know? that's true. And, of course, the, uh, the best way of all to help out the show is to tell people about the show. Yeah. Tell your friends about the show. Otherwise, we'll get canceled like Arrested Development. <laughs> no, we never get canceled. No. Well, you know, Arrested Development. Don't you remember, like, the last season of Arrested Development, they were, like, bagging people to tell people about the show? Well, it would, really? would, like, come up in the script and be like, tell your friends about this show. Really? Well, we'll only get canceled once they come up with a podcast license and they realize that we're offending some Curios special a podcast license, so we should be good. But, yeah, we will get pushed off the internet eventually. Unless we take over this motherfucker. That's right. Be part of the change. <laughs> Excuse me. All right. What do you want now, Darren? Uh, UFO quarter. Uh, oh, yeah. Let's do... Uh... Darren and Graham going deep. It's a profound UFO quote of a week. All right. How many of these you already have? About 199. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm talking about jingles. Oh, I uh, like... 30. A few, yeah, a few. 20. We're me- actually, that's another way you can send some jingles in. Yeah. As a, yeah so There's definitely the more show. than 20 because we're on to the second page. Yeah. 
We could use another like spam gram jingle or awakening jingle or even another trip report of lucid dreams. What else? There was another one that we wanted to do. Anyways. Yeah, yeah. this time's a support jingle. Yeah. So um, I got a double, a two, two short uh, UFO quotes of the week here. It's a double. If that's okay with you, Darren. Yeah, I suppose. It was a proc, especially because Red Pill Junkie's here and it's been a while since we've talked about this. It was approximately 50 feet in length. There were portholes on the side, but there were no visible signs of propulsion. The ship appeared to be metallic and gave off a bright glow. There was a low whirring sound coming from it. That was Police Constable Brian Earnshaw, backup Lancashire, October 1969. Two other uniformed officers, PC Colin Donahue and Malcolm Reeder, also witnessed the object from a different location. Ooh. And then the next one is, there was an eerie greenish-gray glow in the sky. Then I picked out an object about 30 feet long and built up in three sections with a top looking like a dustbin lid. It gave off a high-pitched whine. I was paralyzed. I just couldn't believe it. That was Police Constable Colin Perks, Wimslow, Cheshire, March 1966. Nice. I like those ones where, uh, you know, it's corroborated by different uh, different policemen witnessing it from a different spot. And paint a nice picture. Definitely not an airplane. Why not? No. Mm. <laughs> Swamp gas? <laughs> <laughs> you just be, see people yelling up their stairs. Did you see that? Definitely a flock of geese. Did you yeah. see that meme with all the different pictures of all these crazy looking craft? And then it had like the explanation of them, swamp gas. And then, like one of them oh, was swamp yeah. gas yeah. and the rest of them were like, were like, uh, weather balloon, weather balloon, weather balloon, weather balloon. Yeah. No. Weren't you looking for that particular poster when we were, yes. when, we were when we were at the first Paradigm Symposium? I was, yeah. <laughs> but, but that was just, I was just looking for the one with all the different craft. Yeah. I remember the look of the lady at the store when you explained to her you were. <laughs> Purportedly, there specifically in the lookout for a UFO poster, and I was like, "Yeah, I don't know him. <laughs> I just met him today." <laughs> oh, that's right. Yes, we're in the mall. We're in the mall of a mall, probably. Yeah, the mall of yeah. the mall of America. Oh, that's funny. Huh. Nice. Probably got time for one more. One more uh, email. Sure. Okay. Let's see here. Okay, this is just a little a little bit of a synchro kind of thing. I think it's a synchro. Or it could be a ripple stick. Actually, we need a ripple stick jingle. Like kind of a precog. Of a rambling grand with synchronicities All over the web And Darren is skeptical about everyone And don't believe it yet This is from Dave. He says, hey Graham, just a quick one. I've just finished listening to the Cliff High show. Wow, fantastic. Ooh, that was a fun one. And of course, please don't change a thing. You put up a lot of sh- Oh, here we go. You put up a- with a lot of shit from Darren. All in good fun, of course. But it makes for great oh. listening. Not that hearing you cop shit is good. It's that you seem to have a Teflon skin and just let it roll off. Yeah, let shit roll right off his skin right. and up his butt. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, the synchro. So the local supermarket reduces the price of their bakery bread at the end of each day. 
If I happen to be there at night time, I'll, I'll get a few loaves and keep them in the freezer. A few days ago, we pulled out an olive sourdough loaf to cut up for lunch, and I've been thinking lately to try cut down on so many carbs like bread and pasta just to make myself feel better. I'd already had a few meals over the past few days while thinking about cutting down on carbs when for whatever reason I said, fuck it, I don't want bread with my sandwich. I'll just have spinach leaves in place of bread. My wife looked at me weird and made a breadless sandwich while, oh, a breadless sandwich while baking a normal sandwich for her and our two young kids. So we sit down for lunch at the table. Three quarters of the way through her sandwich, my wife pulls out a piece of glass from the bread which she had crunched on. Luckily, she didn't, oh sw- luckily she didn't swallow any, we think. We are now in the process of following it up with the supermarket, which I've been reassured or assured they're taking it very seriously. He says bullshit. See in the states. Anyway, the piece of sue the fuckers back to the stoners. Oh come on! Anyways, the piece of bread she pulled it out of would probably have been my piece, as she always makes food for the kids, then me, then herself, just the way she is. Anyways, love the show. We'll send through some dollars when I've got a job. Till then, (laughs) keep up the good work. (laughs) Buy your wife some flowers before you send money to the show. Yeah, yeah. Um. I mean, you should have just like you should have just grabbed the glass, bit on it, made your mouth bleed, and then went into the That's store, right. and then you could get a couple couple thousand for your. It's like a Bob and Doug McKenzie way. We don't, encur- hey, put we the, don't put encourage the, fucking put the, smoking pot on the show. Put but the mouse in the beer bottle so you can get the free beer. <laughs> Well, you should at least get a year, you know, full a year full of you know free bread from that supermarket. I've yeah. been making a lot of my own bread lately. How would glass get in there, though? Yeah, it's really pretty easy. How would glass get in there, though? Uh, you haven't I don't been know. making your own bread. Yeah. No, you Every tried Sunday. it. What? Yeah. It's really not that hard. Ever since you found really? out that gluten is really not um, a problem if you make bread the Ever since way? I really started looking at the ingredients on, my, on the loaf bread. of bread. Yeah. And it's just like as long Sugar, as my arm. Yeah. And Here's then at home, you know what I make my bread with? I make my bread with yeast, warm water, flour, and a bit of honey. Here's my prediction. And a bit of honey? And now, some salt. All the people who were worried about gluten are going to be very, very, you know, uh, embarrassed about it. You know, it's going to be one of those things like, oh, yeah, yeah, the gluten scare. The big gluten scare, twenty sixteen. No, yeah. no, I don't buy. I don't believe it. I think that that's firmly 2010s? implanted. I think that's firmly implanted as bad, and things will just go the non gluten way. Sure, yeah. sure. So I can like, make four, I like can make salt. four loaves of bread if you if you do it like, first yeah, thing yeah, Sunday like morning. Lowering your salt and, and, and <laughs> drinking like eight glass of water, and then turns out, oh no, no, you actually need need salt in your system, and don't drink that much water because it's going to like. <laughs> Get rid of all the, the 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 calcium in your bones. So, no, no, no. Just get back to where you. No, what you, you know because before you read all those. No, no, because there's some things books. like I think gluten, sugar, and um, and what else was I thinking of? There's a few things that just I don't think they're ever going to come back to being healthy. One of my favorite healthy, like. Woody Allen movies is uh, The Dreamer. I think it's from 1973. You know, it's as old as I am. <laughs> you know, and they make fun of all those new age healthy diets from the 1960s. And when the guy is explaining to Woody Allen that he was asleep for 50 years, and he's like, 
Woody Allen is like, oh my God, I don't think I can take it. Yet. And the doctor is here, take this. And it's a cigarette. And he said, no, 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 I don't smoke. And the, and the doctor says, it's tobacco. It's the healthiest thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I love that scene. Nice. Well, I suppose we should wrap it up. Should we? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, well yeah, if, enjoy. If you want my bread recipe. You can spam ground, and I'll send it to you. Does it taste good? Yeah, it tastes delicious. Does it go bad in a day? Does it go bad in a couple days? I'm a really good cook. Well, I know you do some cooking, but I knew you were telling you talked about the bread thing, but I didn't think you were doing it every Sunday. It's good for about a week, which is all you need. That's not bad. Yeah. Hmm. How come you even brought me a piece of Darren's homemade toast or something like that? Because I'm not your fucking server. (laughs) (laughs) If If you want me to cook for you, come for dinner. All right. I'm, I don't eat. That's a, that's like nighttime food for me. Okay, toast. so Graham's or gonna some go fresh to bread, some cheese, and some like Darren's meat. Thanksgiving dinner, and Darren's gonna Thanksgiving's serve his over, motherfucker. Bread. Thanksgiving was a month ago. Oh, a month the and a half ago. The real Thanksgiving, okay. not the, the black, not the Black Friday me. Thanksgiving. <laughs> well, we can do it all over again. I'm down for that. I do love to overeat. I like Thanksgiving too because there's just so much everything. There's like, uh, oh, so much of that food that really only comes out of Thanksgiving. Yeah, like, like hammer down on it, like the like candied yams and the turkey. No, turkey you can have a couple times a year, and chicken's not that far off. Love turkey. With the, like cranberry things, or the like, you know, there's like six different kinds of potatoes, turnips. Oh. <laughs> Good stuff, and then you have leftovers for a couple of days and stuffing. I used to be a big stuffing mm-hmm. cooker. I'm gonna, I should uh, do a stuffing for Christmas, maybe. When I was a kid, That's... I had the book that was like 50 different stuffings cookbook. Wow, yeah, oh, I, you, nothing, none of them do you actually stuff into the bird. Okay, you serve it, we Why just not? cook it on the side. No, no reason, it's just you know, they're just funny, they're just hoity-toity fancy stuffings, I guess you just have to, there's a lot of work to them. I think the fancy stuffings are the ones that are in the bird. You can't fit enough fucking stuffing in the bird for ten people. I think you can, no? Do they make, do, do people just do that as tradition? That's a tradition. Because we always have stuffing from the bird, and then mm-hmm. there's, there's, another, there's another pot that's made sometimes as well? Sometimes both. Well, we'll have to listen to No Agenda this week, and Dvorak will tell you why the stuffing in the bird yeah. can kill you is bullshit. Adam Loya was telling me about, you know, this idea of a pheasant Inside of chicken. Oh, a turducken. A turducken. <laughs> yeah, like a Russian doll of, you know, of cooking. No, it's a, it's a duck inside a, or it's a, it's a chicken inside a duck inside a turkey. And then that should be inside an ostrich, I, I think. You know? I think I mean, ostrich are in need danger. To push it. I bet you they'd be kind of tough, ostrich. I don't know if I want to eat ostrich. No, they're I think there's a beer can inside the chicken, too, probably. Jeez. They do. They do do them with beer cans. Yeah, you can do a beer can chicken. That's for the barbecue. That's different. Is it? Yeah. Okay. You don't deep fry the beer can. <laughs> <laughs> what do you eat? What? What do you do? You, do you ever cook? I cook fish. I cook fish and vegetables. Like I'm trying to eat more fish. DHA is apparently like the most important thing we need to put in our bodies now. Like, and I'm re- realizing this from some scientists that are pretty out okay. there. Yeah, so I like fish. 
So I'm and then I cook myself a steak sometimes and some vegetables. I try and eat just like you know vegetables and fish and stuff. But I like pancakes and bacon too. But bacon. I use Bob's Red Mill ten grain pancakes. Bacon's good. It's for like you. really good to pancake Why would ingredients. You just make your own pancakes it because takes this like is better for you. Like a minute and a half. This is better. Oh, it's never better for you. Then, then using the white flour and all that. No, it's Bob's food. Red Mill. Like it's oh. it's fucking natural <laughs> organic. <laughs> 10 Ultimate grain, brand. like 10 grain. I mean, it, I, I, can't, I can't make un- it any better than organic that. Organic unbleached flour. <laughs> yeah, you can. You'd be surprised. You could have your organic free-run eggs, got from the farm. I know I can't. A couple eggs, eggs, some milk, have your unbleached meal. flour, done. <laughs> yeah, but my five-year-old. Flour, my five-year-old like flour, I don't like the f- white flour is not good for you, isn't it? I get unbleached flour. Is that better? I don't know. I don't care. Yeah, well, you were I mean, an advocate goes, of table salt back, over Himalayan sea salt not too long ago. That goes back to fucking gluten, right? Jay. That's the main just, dilemma. Just remember. But you could, no, it's not, you could offset sugar. the flour with whatever you want. Right. Just, like just remember, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch. <laughs> I don't care how you spell it. <laughs> what was that, Red? You want to make an apple pie from scratch, you have to make the entire universe. You know? Yeah. yeah. That Carl Sagan nice. quote. Yeah. You reminded me of it. Well, I'm working off the backs of other people. But I can make an apple pie from scratch, too. Have you no, ever heard that jingle? Our universe. No, we should make it a jingle. No, it's, there's, there's a jingle out there. We, I, could... could, I should take a cut from it. And we'll use that to make the cooking segment jingle for when okay, I do my go. recipes. There you go. Uh-oh. All right. Well, we should about wrap it up. Uh, it's been great <laughs> to have Red back. Nice it, chatting with you, Red. It, uh, yeah, I mean, the audio nice to be back. does get a little spotty, especially with Niles's end. There was a connection issue there, but uh, you motherfuckers will just have to deal with it. For the most part, it's not too bad. It's listenable for sure. Enjoy the chat. Tonight we've got one of our past guests, Niles Heckman, back with us in Grime America, and he's brought along Rack Rasm, and these guys are uh, developing a great documentary series called Shamans of the Global Village, and they both have their own website and their own podcast, and they're both into sort of like the new awakening psychedelics and um, plant medicines and all that, so it's uh, great to have you guys on. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us, fellas. It's good to talk to you again, as always. Hey, that's actually a good uh, thing to get. A, whenever whenever we ask both of you a question, we'll go in that order that we just did. <laughs> so that we're not... At, we're, see? Perfect. Yeah. 
I should also yeah, mention Rackers we have um, Michael here, a friend of the show, is going to jump in like a fly on the wall. Hey guys, America. So guys, I watched hey, your uh, I watched your first episode uh, the other night. And it was fantastic. Absolutely loved it. You guys did a, just a great job. <clears throat> well, that, that was all Niles's uh, all Niles's amazing work there. I'll let him take the credit. Do you want to? Uh, can oh, you get in? Yeah. Well, thank you, man. So. Go ahead. Just describe uh, describe that first episode. It was, uh, I mean, it was just, uh, I don't know, it was a good taste of what's to come, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, for something that was made kind of independently on a very shoestring budget, it's something that we're very proud of. You know, Rack has a, um, a background as kind of an experiential journalist doing a lot within the anthogenic community. And I'll kind of let him introduce himself. But the And then I have a background working in Hollywood. So it, the show is kind of the culmination of, of our two kind of life's work thus far. And um, yeah, we're really proud of it. So thank you for saying so, man. That means a lot. Yeah, it was good. So how many... Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Rack. I was going to say, yeah, it's a... Um... It's a uh, it's a labor of love, and it's uh, it's something that I've been involved in in documenting and working as a, a journalist, commenting on alternative culture and the rise in shamanism, and predominantly ayahuasca. About ten years ago, I went down to the Amazon as a freelance writer and was writing about uh, the rise in ayahuasca tourism and what the role of the shaman was in the 21st century and what the importance of that was. And uh, I wrote a few books on that and did another documentary in ayahuasca. And uh, it just kept evolving. And there's um, been such an interest and in, in surge in uh, global interest in both shamanism and plant-based medicines uh, that it really seemed like it was time to document that in an ongoing online TV show. Nice. That's, that's great. We talk about this quite a bit on the show, actually. It ends up coming up. We do a little segment even called Trip Reports from, from listeners who send us their stories about some sort of awakening, usually through psychedelics of one sort or another. And, of course, we talk about the, the exodus to South America for ayahuasca and all that. So it's great to, um, I don't know, it's great to be a part of this this sort of why I can't kind of think of it as an awakening too. And some of the things that I didn't realize were happening in the first episode, when you guys were talking about the, the main topic was the, the toad secretion. I can't remember what it's called, but that it was actually, some of these things were, were global way before we thought they were. Yeah. I mean, there's been many civilizations across the world that have used uh, plants or animal psychoactive medicines uh, to alter their consciousness, but it, it's not—it's not something like they had a completely different worldview, I guess, than we do nowadays. After a few generations of Richard Nixon's instigated war on drugs, um, you know, it, it's—you look at the cultures like the Maya or the Olmecs or uh, the Aztecs, or, or even you know, throughout Europe, you had the Eleusian Mysteries, which the Greeks had a psychoactive substance they used in an initiation rite, which their ceremonies and their rituals lasted for over two thousand years. And the Greeks are sort of the bastion of not just democracy, but a lot of mathematics and philosophy and the sort of underpinnings of what became Western civilization. And they had a psychoactive substance that is documented. It's documented. It's in the, the historical record. It was punishable by death if you mentioned it, which is probably why it lasted for 2,000 years. But, you know, even um, slaves and women could partake of that substance. So it sort of transcended politics itself. 
there's all the sort of Druidic sort of um, cultures through through Britain and in Eurasia. You know, there was the magic mushroom and all these other different different substances. Uh, in India, in the Vedic sort of traditions, they had the soma. Um, they had, you know, things that altered their consciousness, which is in their holy books. There seems to be a lot of evidence coming out lately once we get over the social and institutional sort of dogmas, which point sort of to the fact that uh, most of the world's religions had some psychoactive element to them. Even if you look at cannabis, with a, spelled with a K, K-A-N-B-I-S, uh, was one of the um, substances used to anoint the Messiah or the Holy One. Um, in the in the Old Testament, uh, they'd use this this secretion this um, substance where they would rub it over the body and it would have a psychoactive effect. And that was, you know, it, it's all documented. It's just that the truth is hidden amongst the uh, the fine print, I guess, in all these different cultures. And and now there seems to be uh, well a resurgence in interest and um, anthropologically and historically, all these things are on record and we can uh, we can look at it with a more objective eye now. <laughs> didn't the didn't the Greeks used to have like a spot you went to trip out to, like a pan? Are you thinking? Well, about- the Greek the Greeks the Greeks had a few things. There was the the Oracle of Delphi, uh, yeah, which was a location one. in Greece, and there was a crevice in the ground which fumes would come up from, and the Oracle, who was a, a woman, would uh, sort of you know straddle the crevice, but there was something in the fumes that would alter the consciousness. And then she would sort of uh, the the theory was that she would give readings of the future, and she would say pronunciations about future events from that alteration of consciousness. But this is a thing, not just just that, but indigenous cultures all around the world and tribal cultures and even cultures which then became more city-based and grew away from their relationship with nature, um, they still all remember that, you know, altering consciousness is part of the human birthright and there's been so many traditions which became sort of formalized more as religious traditions. And then as the priestcraft took over, um, the original sacrament was sort of usually, you know, edited out. Um, and then we've ended up with this sort of fossilization of, of dogmas. But all of these uh, original streams had, you know, some original catalyst to them. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that was the Kaikion at the Illusion Mysteries, kind of the name of the sacrament that was used there for... Yeah, it was well over 2,000 years they used that. You know, I think it was more like 2,500 years. So that says a lot. If a sacrament was kind of used as an initiatory mystery school at that time of such high antiquity and high renaissance. So I think in past times, we've really done things in better ways than we do them now. And we've kind of lost track of some of that lineage of um, our kind of entheogenic past um, in terms of kind of spirituality. You know, it, it also brings to, to the fore the idea that, I mean, what is civilization and what is a culture? If you go all the way down to a tribal level, I mean, they have survival amongst them and, you know, they're born into it over many, many generations. Uh, but usually then they have an ideology and that we need, you know, we're, we're doing this recording uh, on election day in America. And it's like, what is what is it that bonds, uh, you know, culture together? It's like you, you have something like the American dream or you have something 
that brings you together. And in many of these original cultures, they had an authentic experience. They had a connection with nature and in altering their consciousness, not in ways that we think of just to shift consciousness, but to bring them back into relationship with nature and to expand their consciousness uh, to give them an understanding of what they were embedded in and what you know life really was. And then they could live in right relationship. And, and that itself was, was often a survival mechanism. But you know these cultures would often, and it still happens today in the Amazon basin, many cultures uh, take things like ayahuasca together um, and they share a group experience, a group bonding that really transcends what we have, which is sort of politics, religion, and uh, Facebook, you know? So it's like these things can really, really uh, be a lot more, bring a lot more depth to what it means to be a culture and to have these unified experiences between you. Yeah, I never really realized until a couple of years ago <clears throat> the wide variety of these these natural plant medicines. I mean, I only thought of like mushrooms and I mean, I don't even know if I knew of that many back then. All of a sudden I'm realizing there's 10, 20 different types that people are... I always knew peyote because it was in, oh, like, yeah. remember those old Billy the Kid movies? Emilio Estevez was Billy the Kid. They ate the peyote. I was like, <laughs> I love those movies when I was a kid, so I knew what peyote was, like, before I even smoked well, pot. Wasn't there an episode of The Simpsons where, where Homer yeah. had some psychedelic hot chili or something? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember that too. Homer's, Homer's had a couple psychedelic experiences, yeah. <laughs> Now I'm gonna have to dig. Yeah, that and, up I mean that's a good point. To, that's a good point to highlight the separation of a culture that's you know like something in the industrialized first world or the Western world that might have had some experiences with entheogens or what you might call you know, hasn't had this lineage to shamanism to kind of put the experience into the kind of proper container. So maybe I'm, I'm sure that most of your guys' you know listeners on this show is pretty kind of sophisticated crowd but are familiar with what shamanism is but maybe we'll just have kind of rack give the kind of separation between um you know taking uh, a center an earth-based medicine in the context of a shaman versus just doing it you know willy-nilly like oh, yeah. in those contexts yeah that's a good point yeah <laughs> well it's interesting because i mean you know the western idea of what a shaman that, is and what, what shamanism is has you know evolved over the last uh, half century or so. But if you go to indigenous cultures, I mean, the shaman is a very specialized role. I mean, most indigenous cultures will have their hunters and gatherers and they may have chieftains or they may have sort of ver various levels of hierarchy. But the shaman's sort of outside of all that as well. It's someone who has a foot in both worlds and works on behalf of the village, mediating their house and their relationship with nature. Um, you know, it, it's often seen as a healer in, in the West, um, when the early 20th century sort of anthropology was studying different medicines and different peoples across the world, they would see that all these different cultures had a medicine person. And, you know, um, that was responsible for the health of the tribe and mediating their right relationships. Uh, but the, the West basically threw all that together under the blanket term shaman, which originally came from the word salmon, which was part of the Siberian, um, Siberian medicine uh, work. And um, since then, we, we've had this brand. It's almost become this idea of what is a shaman. It's a very mythic archetype in the West, especially because we've had the absence of the shaman. We basically killed our shamans. We killed our witches and our herbalists and our medicine people. Uh, and, you know, 500 years ago, Western culture, whether that was the British or the Spanish or the Portuguese, as they went over to, uh, to the first world again and to cultures like South America and they found cultures 
which we're using um, entheogenic plants or plants which uh, expand consciousness, uh, they considered them the work of the devil. And so they tried to kill them off as well. And so it basically resulted in the fact that we had an absence of the shaman in our, uh, our culture. That's a pretty uh, apt description, actually. I, I haven't heard it described that way before, how we killed off our shaman, but I mean, it makes a lot of sense. That's kind of what I was going to ask, is how <clears throat> this whole clampdown on, on our s- sovereignty of our consciousness, right? Like, like, like Graham Hancock would say, like, we deserve sovereignty over our own consciousness. Like, how much of that was, was done on purpose, or was it intentional, or was it just a matter of the way the way the West was sort of created? Like, did it, just, did it happen sort of by accident, just as, as we evolve? Well, there was lots of forces at work. Mainly it was, you know, forces of religion hundreds of years ago. Uh, and those forces of religion saw anything outside of themselves out of their way to approach God or their, their cultural, um, you know, approach was, was wrong or evil. Um, and then that we've inherited that Judo-Christian sort of religion and that, that sort of energy. And it's really had a bias towards anything which is outside of um, the usual sort of spectrum of, of existence. Anything which, you know, even even now we have a war on not just psychoactive plants, but a war on herbs and a war on plant plants themselves. Because we have a pharmaceutical industry now that is really has an incredible vested interest in the money and in, um, in using artificial things which have patents on them and chemicals which affect us and have... Uh, you know, contraindications, but we've basically we basically have a war on nature. I mean, this is it. It's basically we, we've distanced ourselves from nature and from knowing the right rhythms, and we've been living in cities. And now, over fifty-one percent of people in the world live in cities. It's a majority of humanity now live in you know these concrete urban environments. And we don't have an inbuilt relationship with nature. We've forgotten what it means, you know. And so we, we've we've um, we're reestablishing that. And so this this reawakening and this interest again in not just psychoactive plant medicines, but herbs and and things that nature can give us. And you look at permaculture, and you look at going back to the land and um, establishing right relationships. This this sort of feels to me about what it's all about. It's not even just about like shamanic awakening or a spiritual awakening. It's about us awakening to the fact that we live on a planet that's not in a city, and uh, we need to you know be in relationship with it. So you must have seen that that change quite a bit over the last decade since you've been involved in this for for so long now. I mean, I've unless I feel like you know, unless we've been in a bubble over the last few years, but it seems like there's a huge increase and in even even like we're definitely the psychi- in somewhat of a self induced bubble. We we are, but I mean, there's somewhat there's the I mean, I I keep bumping into people that have gone down to South America and they're and they've uh, they've tried this and then there's all these festivals that are the festivals seem to be more and more popular and it seems to overlap with this culture as well. So it must be growing. I mean, is there a chance that I don't know? Is there is there is there a hope for it to overtake the uh, the, the war dominant, on nature, the dominant patriarchal, dominant patriarchal culture, which has led us to the brink of extinction exactly. and is killing us slowly. Yeah. All over the planet. Yes, there is a hope, but this is the thing. It's like, okay, if you want the, the, the big picture, it, it's like basically, I mean, here's, here's a big hello. The earth is alive. And it's not only it's alive, it has a sentience or a sapience or some type of active intelligence, which basically grooms and grows the species on the earth to be in 
maybe not always cooperation, but to move energy around and to be in synergy. So, you know, ecosystems and natural um, natural systems are meant to be flowing energy from one to the other. And, you know, our waters and our forests and our air, all of them uh, work together. You know, it's like so the plants and the, 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 the condensation cycle and the air cycle, nature knows what she's doing. And she has made all her species, including humans, which, you know, somewhere along the line seem like we've fallen out of balance. And so the, that falling out of balance seems to be as long as recorded history in the last 10,000 years or so, or as Terence McKenna used to call it, his story, because it's written by the victors. You know, the story of what happens in history is written by those who have the power and have the money and have controlled the vested interests. And if we look at what's happening in the world today, we are living in the crescendo, the tail end of history of all that's come before and we fucked up the planet, excuse my French. You know, we, we, we've actually fallen out of right relationship. We've poisoned the waters. We've poisoned the earth. We've taken out all the natural resources. Like if you think of like, you know, the earth as a macro organism, like a large scale single organism with all these other organisms, which are the species within it. And if you look at our human body, imagine if you started to take out all the calcium or, or just all your proteins or all like one bit out of your body. Your body is going to go into like cardiac arrest and start shutting down. It's going to start to try to fight the infection. So potentially what's happening from the planet on a more Gaian holistic level as the planet as a whole is that she's actually fighting back and having an immune response syndrome. Mm. She's actually, you know, secreting these substances which have been out there for a while and things like ayahuasca. Yes, they have really skyrocketed in popular understanding in the last decade or so precisely because they work and they are a bit of a um, immune response syndrome from the planet herself and they can give a very short sharp whack to the head to wake you up and the thing is we don't have a lot of time where we're in this slow march over the cliff or the analogy of if you throw a frog in boiling water it'll jump out but if you slowly boil the water It'll, you know, if you just replace one president with the next and one crooked company with the next crooked company and one bad law with the next bad law, eventually things just get so worse, you know, people don't see it or they don't have a, a trigger point where they realize it's so bad. But we have a trigger point. We know that the environment is in rapid transformation and degradation. We know the amount of oxygen level, um, CO2 levels in the air. We know all of these things which science is telling us are at a really critical level and things are not going to be the same. And the thing is, what is it that's happening? Planet Earth is changing. We're part of planet Earth. And by taking substances like ayahuasca or um, the Sonoran Desert Toad, which is the subject of our documentary, or San Pedro Cactus, or Salvia divinorum, or psilocybin mushrooms, or you name the dozens and dozens of plants which are secreted by the planet herself and are designed for mammals to use. And what do they do? They reveal within us that we have these relationships with nature. They expand our consciousness to bring us back to the levels that we perhaps once had when we were in synergy with nature before we got sick, before the fall of consciousness. And, you know, it's an emergency here on planet Earth. And these, these are not things to be taken lightly. There's a great uh, trust and a great responsibility in using these substances. But overall, I think the planet herself is saying, wake the fuck up. Yeah, it's so sad that we don't hear about this on the mainstream media. Like the, when I watched your dog, the first episode there, I guess that was about the Sonoran frog, right? Or desert toad, I guess you would call it. Um, the guy, Octavio, or whoever has been doing that, has been he's done it to so many people, right? I mean, so many people have gone through this process. Many of them healed through many things, including addiction. 
you know, we should be hearing more about this, you know, somewhere somewhere else in the mainstream a bit. Yeah, so episode one features the work of Dr. Octavio Rettig. He's a, a Mexican-trained uh, doctor who had his own battle with addiction. He was a crack addict off and on for many years. And as part of that, he sort of went back to his Mexican heritage and he was uh, he was working with some other plant-based medicines like, um, well, it wasn't ayahuasca, I think there was um, San Pedro Cactus and others to help him try to kick his addiction. And eventually he was introduced to the Bufo of Arias or the Sonoran Desert Toad, which is native to the north of Mexico in the Sonoran Desert region. And, you know, he had a great success in uh, in kicking his own addiction to, to, to crystal meth or to crack. And um, from that, he realized that these substances were more powerful for him than Western pharmaceuticals, which yeah. only masked the problem or created another problem and was sort of part of the problem, you know. It was like that these substances can help re-engineer your own relationship to health and they can help you see what's at the root cause of your addiction. There's a very famous uh, Western doctor called Dr. Gabo Mate who's been working with ayahuasca the last few years but for 20 years or so in Canada, you might know of him. He's been uh, working yeah. with addiction and addiction therapy and recovery. And, you know, he says basically at the root of all um, addiction is trauma. And a, a lot of times it goes back to early childhood trauma, things like that, sexual trauma. And that there's something in our emotional bodies which is causing us to lash out and to act out in this way to try to to you know, fill the gap or cover over the pain. There's pain. You know, we're experiencing this thing of this disconnection from our, our natural state. And so these substances, it's not just that they have a physical effect. Quite often what they do, say, with things like ayahuasca, is that they also reveal what's in your subconscious mind and they bring it up to the fore, or they work on the emotional body. So things that you've been holding onto and carrying with you, mm-hmm. even if you're consciously aware of it or not, that really becomes very obvious and it becomes it comes up and it is dealt with by the conscious mind. And that then gets to the root cause of the addiction. So all these Western pharmaceuticals that they give us, whether they have an addiction interrupting uh, capacity or not, they're just more and more chemicals and they're, they're creating a chemical dependency on our physical bodies, which quite often doesn't deal with the emotional problem. For that, they'll give you Prozac or another pharmaceutical, you know, that keeps you doped up as well. So these substances from the earth, these shamanic medicines, can help you get in, in touch with your own inner shamanic core, your own ability to be your own medicine. And you're not just taking something to fix you, you're getting in touch with your soul, essentially. And then you're, you know, you're starting to work on your own relationship with yourself. Yeah, and the le- legal drugs yeah. now and are killing, for years, le- legal drugs have been killing people by overdose uh, more than the illegal drugs, which is, is saying something about big pharma and the... You know the the hole that that's making now. The uh, is there is there also is there any chance of addiction to these types of drugs in themselves? I mean, I've heard of some people that have gotten rid of uh, chronic pot addictions or other type of addictions, but then you hear they've been, you know, they've been on fifty or sixty of these, uh, you know, weekend episode type things. I mean, is there a chance that 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 becomes a uh, a problem? No. no. I mean, I, I've never heard of anyone saying they're addicted to ayahuasca or addicted to the buffo various toad. These are incredibly strong medicines. I mean, they're strong uh, on a psychic level, on what the, your consciousness experiences, what it reveals. They're not something you do lightly. They're not recreational. Uh, you, you can't just go out and party on them. They're, they're incredibly profoundly transformative tools of consciousness itself. And, you know, they they have a built-in sort of equ- equ- equilibrium to them in that you, you 
you physically mm. can't take too much of these substances. I mean, you're not going to necessarily overdose on them because they're natural substances. And in a lot of the shamanic communities I and people I talk with, they say that these things, because, you know, the Buffalo Various Toad, for instance, you know, it spends nine months of the year underground in the earth, nurturing its uh, its venom sacs, which contain bufotenine and 5-MeO-DMT, which is also native to the human brain. But, you know, it, it, the, the medicine that's in its body uh, which when it comes up above above the earth for a few months, it can be harvested from it. It doesn't hurt the toad. It can be milked and dried, and then that substance can be can be smoked. Uh, but these things, uh, they're natural substances. So our bodies recognize the fact that these are other natural substances, so they're not artificial chemicals, and there's a built-in tolerance level. And now, you know, there are... There are warnings for people, you know, in shamanic ceremonies, there's duty of care and there's health uh, things you need to look out for in terms of contraindications with different substances and how they work. But if those things are adhered to and taken care of, I feel in general they're a lot more safe than than, um, artificial pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Niles, what was it like for you? And the thing about them is that, you know, ultimately you can – Go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, no. Keep going. Graham. Keep going. There's a slight delay. Oh, there, I was, I was just going to add to that that you know, ultimately you can only, ultimately like you can only real really heal you you know through your own will. So like these kind of shamanic medicines, you know, these earth based medicines, which we're kind of highlighting on the show and the concept for the show, like Rack mentioned, is to have each episode focus on a specific medicine and a specific medicine person. It's like you can only heal you, but the these are fabulous catalysts for healing and healing not so much in the Western sense of like, I'm sick, I have a cold, I need medicine. But a major part of healing is kind of coming into wholeness, which is understanding some of the things that, you know, Rack has highlighted in terms of consciousness expansion and, you know, not living in a kind of world that's destroying their planet or, you know, X, Y, and Z. So it's much more of a broader, wider sense in terms of the word healing. Uh, it's not just a physical sickness, but it's more or less kind of a global or, you know, societal mental sickness. Yeah. You know, you know what would happen in ancient China, apparently, you know, the rich families would have their own in-house doctors, but the doctor would only get paid and remain on staff if people remained well. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't called on to fix a cold or to fix a problem. If something went wrong, then they would get in trouble. And it's like, this is, I think, is, is what we're going through. We're having to revolutionize and see that essentially our entire modern culture is sick. It's completely completely out of alignment with integrity of right relationship with the planet, with ourselves. It's driven by money. It's driven by pharmaceutical interests and vested interests. And it's like we just need to wipe the slate clean. And, you know, when we take uh, have a shamanic experience with these earth-based medicines, they are incredibly profound transformers of consciousness. And, you know, for people that have experienced it, you can talk about it. For people that haven't experienced it, it it's it's almost like trying to describe having sex with someone, right? It's like it's very intimate and it's very personal. And on the outside, you know, one of the challenges of making documentary films about uh, shamanic experiences is that when you film the experience itself, the ceremony itself, you're only getting the outside flesh body. You're seeing the person either roll around or go through some type of somatic body effect. Yeah. But that's just sort of that's sort of just the the um, the after effect. Or you're seeing them process energy. You're seeing them in very intimate situation, but you're just seeing what's happening on the outside. On the inside is what it's all about. On the inside, using you know your intuition and, and your your connection to what you're going through, 
is you're connecting to other states of being. And this is what tribal cultures, indigenous cultures understand, is that we are embedded in their cosmology. The physical world is embedded in an energetic ecology. And that energetic ecology, we might call the astral, um, or you know, in modern quantum physics, we might say hyper dimensions or other dimensions. Um, but it has it has its own uh, it has its own energetics. It has its own perhaps entities or beings that live there. It has its own place, you know, and it it it, it interacts with us and it's part of us. And we need to learn how to interact with it. But these are very profound experiences which have for 100 years or more in the West been just uh, discarded with the term hallucination. Yeah. You yeah. know, when, when, when LSD was uh, first used in the 19, late 40s and early 50s in psychotherapy before it was illegal, one of the terms they gave it was psychomimetic, which meant that it, it, it induced what was considered to be psychosis. But in indigenous cultures, they don't have psychosis. They do not have crazy people traditionally because both they are supported by the tribe and they are understood. And there are often, you know, people in indigenous cultures which have variances away from the normal capacity for consciousness. They might be sensitive to certain things or they might have, you know, just different abilities. But those people are usually nurtured in their tribe. And the ones who are really sensitive are made their shamans, are made their medicine people. They see that they have a sensitivity for them and they give them the role and responsibility of using that sensitivity to connect with the subtle energetics of the energetic ecology we're embedded in and to use those skills on behalf of their tribe. In our culture, we label people crazy and we medicate them because we're crazy. You know, there's a Jay Krishnamurti quote, it's no accomplishment to be, you know, adjusted to an insane society and, and call yourself sane. It's like we've totally got it round the wrong way in our culture. Yeah, well, thankfully things are changing. <clears throat> so, Niles, what was it like? I was going to ask you about kind of what Rack was just talking about. People filming people for this documentary and they're in their, some of their most vulnerable moments. Like, that's one of the things that shocked me is you guys got a real, <clears throat> it's a lot of pretty, uh, pretty intense footage of people going through these experiences yeah uh, well thank you man i mean it's some of the most kind of profound stuff that i've shot to date because um i have kind of a background as one of my kind of primary art forms that i love to do in my spare time is street photography which is a very kind of candid form of you know photographing people without necessarily knowing it on the street and this show is kind of shot in a street photography style where it's just kind of me observing in a documentary fashion in this kind of candid street photography way but then also trying to highlight in a cinematic kind of beautiful portrayal some of these amazing experiences that people are going through so in this episode i mean some of the footage is so amazing like the the episode concludes in a ceremony for example that has numerous things in it that i think have probably never really been filmed before or at least not in this way or not at this like level of production value so that documentary of that stuff just kind of happens to come about because of kind of the structure of, of the nature of how the show had, had been made, you know, through kind of Rack's ties and connections to the community and kind of knowing Octavio and having a background, uh, having done the medicine with Octavio and kind of choosing Octavio as the subject for the first episode, which is a big responsibility that Rack has to kind of highlight who are we going to highlight per episode because we obviously want to focus on somebody that's a very honorable, kind of balanced person and no none of these medicine people that we highlight per episode would be perfect. But then sharing their lives kind of in a filmmaking sense on the documentary front um, as kind of documentary filmmakers is what we're trying to do with the show. And I think the first episode did that pretty effectively. And I think we're pretty proud of what came out of it. 
Yeah, so, it was it yeah, was a really it was a really good balance between that raw street photography style and a professional appearance. Like, I think you guys did a really good job. So what, what's, what's uh, next? What's, what's the next episode you guys are going to do? Like what you're doing a different one on different type of medicine with a different sort of shamanic healer there. Yeah, I think we, we mentioned it a little bit before, but essentially there are uh, lots of different shamanic medicines. Uh, the term that was invented for this in the eighties, uh, it was entheogen, which was to distance it a bit from the, the psychedelic, and more man-made chemicals and it comes from the greek it means to invoke invoke the divine within Mm -hmm. which may sound a bit grandiose but i mean some of these things you can really have very profound experiences uh on them like that so the first episode came about as niall said because uh i also sat with and experienced the buffalo various toad medicine with uh dr octavio rettig and uh there are many other uh practitioners within the global shamanic community and this is the thing you know basically i've been for a decade or so involved with the ayahuasca community worldwide i've got two books and a documentary out on ayahuasca and what i was noticing from that you know my original intention to go down to peru in 2006 which was the same year that national geographic adventure put its cover story out on ayahuasca and since then you know every mainstream media outlet in the world pretty much has covered ayahuasca and the interest in it um, and my my original intent was to to look at well what is the role of the shaman in the 21st century and why is that important and it, it, it's sort of still the same central question for this show um, and so it, 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 what I've noticed is it's not just ayahuasca though on, on the coattails in a sense of the popularity of ayahuasca many indigenous cultures around the world have been caretakers for these medicines and still use them and many different cultures like in Mexico there's the psilocybin mushrooms and, and you know that's that's actually probably, you know, the West's first major entheogen or shamanic medicine because back in the 1950s, Gordon Wassoon, who was an investment banker and uh, vice president of, of J.P. Morgan at the time and an amateur mycologist, he went down to Mexico in search of the magic mushroom and then eventually reported on it for Life magazine, which came out in 1957. And that sort of predated the LSD revolution in the 60s. Um, and, you know, the the, the Native American uh uh, curanderas or the, the medicine women who work with the magic mushrooms there in Mexico. Mexico has a lot of these substances. The Sonoran Desert Toad is there. Uh, the Aliloquai or the Morning Glory seeds are around that region as well. Um, but all over Mexico, South America, Australia has many DMT containing acacia plants. There's the Siberian uh, Amanita muscuria, the red and white sort of dotted mushroom, which almost every year invariably I see um, in my Facebook feeds, you'll see these stories about the true origins of Christmas and basically the Siberian shamans. Um, if you eat the, you can't eat the Amanita muscaria mushroom raw, it will, you can die, uh, it can poison the liver. But the reindeers of Siberia would eat the, the mushroom and then the, the Siberian shamans would actually drink uh, reindeer urine because the reindeer's livers would process it. And all, a lot of the origins of like the flying reindeers and uh, all the Christmas sort of uh, origins seem to come from that that central central uh, sort of source. Um, but there's those, you know, as you mentioned on top of the show, peyote in uh, North America with the Native American Indians. Uh, San Pedro cactus is also in North America and in parts of Central America and across the world. Um, these substances, in fact, seem to be secreted by the planet herself in different bioregions and due to the the increase in popularity of shamanism now people are also grafting and growing them in, in the right climates around the world um, and the idea of the show is to focus on different practitioners 
who work with these different medicines in different areas around the world in the global village and to uh, to um, to see, you know, you know, not just what are the effects of this medicine and, and watch people taking them, but to really focus on what is the role of the shaman in the 21st century? What are the, the pitfalls? What are the problems they experience? Uh, how is this resurgence in the shamanic archetype affecting people and the communities that they, they work with? Yeah. Miles, do you have anything to say about that? Huh. Miles? I don't know um, if he's still there. And it cut out there for my thing because I know my side of the conversation's a, a little choppy here, but go ahead and ask again. Um, <clears throat> I was going to say uh, Dr. Octavia, Octavia had some sort of UN permit as well. So, I mean, us living in this bubble in North America and not realizing that um, a lot of the, the globe is a little bit more open to this, I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty, pretty uh, positive to see. Yeah, you know, the toad, uh, the medicine toad is 5-MeO-DMT, and it's actually only illegal in seven countries throughout the world. In the rest of the world, it's it's totally legal. There you go. Where's the, is Canada? You can get the toad in Canada? You know, I do believe that Canada believe is so. legal. Yeah. But, you know, we must distinguish, it's not, like, 5-MeO is actually endogenous to the human brain. It's something which is part of uh, consciousness itself. Tryptamines, which 5-MeO is one of, there's pinealine, there's N-N-dimethyltryptamine and 5-methoxy-dimethyltryptamine. Um, serotonin, you know, they go down the serotonin pathways. These are things which are very um, in, inimical to, well, to the human consciousness itself. It's like they, they're at the root of uh, part of what, you know, uh, uh, helps us navigate in consciousness itself. Dr. Rick Strassman did these tests with, uh, with NN-dimethyltryptamine over 20 years ago now, uh, which is recounted in the book DMT, The Spirit Molecule. And the theory is that these things are, you know, uh, they, you can get a surge of DMT at birth or at death or at near-death experiences, and people often see things like the, the white light tunnel. So NN-dimethyltryptamine, they say, might be the thing which helps mediators going into the dreaming each night and going into that sort of realm of consciousness. And 5-MeO-DMT is essentially what mystics throughout history have described as the white light tunnel and that rejoining of that sense of the divine or source or going back to that oceanic experience of, of uh, consciousness itself. But it's not just in the toad. It's actually, you know, in the human organism. And uh, the toad is, is it's not quite an endangered species, but it is in very small supply. And the region of the desert that it, it, it is native to is also the Mexican drug cartels uh, sort of territory. So there's a lot of um, supply and demand issues. And there's a lot of issues around uh, protecting the toad and making sure that its its conservation is a priority. But essentially, you know, 5-MeO-DMT, which is the, the key compound in the toad that's discussed in episode one, yeah, that substance is not illegal in most countries of the world. These things can often be in a gray area of the law. It doesn't mean that they're actually illegal. It just means that they're not illegal. Uh, basically, you know, Richard Nixon brought this all in with the 1971 Psychotropic Drug Convention, which was designed to sort of uh, counteract uh, the LSD revolution of the 60s, which was a direct threat to the establishment because, um, you know, they it, it totally changed the social dynamics. There's been tests with LSD that have been done on rats, and they say that if you give one rat LSD and put it back into the cage with the other rats, the other rats basically kill it. 
and not because it's it's on LSD, but because it doesn't uh, adhere to the social norm and to the subtle signals that all the other rats give off. And if you're not going to play the culture game and the societal game, well, then you're a threat. So, you know, LSD had this big uh, revolution, essentially, in the 1960s, which really changed the, the course of history. And because of that, uh, Richard Nixon instigated uh, the war on drugs and, you know, throughout the 70s, also the, the cocaine and crack wars and the CIA and all those um, uh, all the other nefarious dealings that they did under, under, the, under the covers. But uh, the United Nations signatory countries essentially inherited this. And some of the only people that were or countries that were able to, um, to filter that out were the ones that uh, lobbied that they should keep their indigenous plant medicines, which are essentially the shamanic medicines, things like coca uh, and ayahuasca and things like that. Uh, which weren't uh, signatory or weren't subject to, the, to, to that overarching um, law. And so because of that, and sometimes under analog act loopholes, these shamanic medicines have uh, managed to survive into the modern day. And, you know, indigenous peoples all around the world still take them. It's only that it's new to Western people as we come back into the fold and come back into relationship with these medicines. Uh, and so there are opportunities for people to go to countries like Peru and partake of these medicines, or perhaps if they are not illegal in their native country. But usually the other thing you've got to really remember is there is a lineage to these things and there is a correct way to do them. And just because they may be not illegal, we're not really suggesting people rush off and uh, find a toad and uh, try to smoke it themselves. There's a there's definitely a duty of care and a right way to do these things, and uh, you know there's there's guidance that is needed in learning to approach them. <laughs> you keep you keep answering my question right before I'm about to ask it, and that was, uh, do you guys have advice for people that just want to smoke DMT? Like, let's say they've they've ordered it from a reputable friend or they found some, and uh, they you know they want <laughs> they want to just smoke some DMT. Is that uh, you know, do you have any advice for people that want to do that? Say it's been kicking around for over well, a year. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously, obviously, we, we do not condone doing anything illegal, even if Richard Nixon instigated these illegal laws to begin with. Um, I, I don't know. If, you, if you're saying you've got some DMT in your brain and you'd like to know how to activate it, we know what you can do. You can go in a darkness ritual for, for 10 to 14 days and your brain will spontaneously start to secrete these tryptamines uh, but uh, in regards to external, uh, you know, external chemical DMT, maybe check out Erowid, E-R-O-W-I-D.org. It's a not-for-profit that's been around about 20 years, yeah. and it has a lot of information around chemicals and drug usage. Uh, there is a little bit of, um, I mean, there's a lot of overlap, but essentially, even if you look on sites like, uh, well, if you look on social media, and you, there are so many uh, sort of psychedelic sites and shamanic sites and plant medicine sites, funnily enough, the the, the, the psychonauts or the psychedelic sites seem to outnumber the shamanic medicine ones about 10 to 1 on the, the likes and the hits. There, there seems to be an incredible, you know, uh, audience out there who are interested in psychedelics, which at the moment, you know, the, the Western tradition for that is is really steering towards reabsorbing it back into the medical model. There's organizations like MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, we're having a 30th anniversary conference uh, next April in Oakland, California, mm -hmm. and they've been working with scientists and doctors and the government to uh, to do legally um, legal tests with psychedelic substances for people. Unfortunately, they usually have to do them on people who are uh, terminally ill or um, at late stages of, of cancer or things like that, because that's the very narrow bandwidth the, the government and the FDA allows them to do it in. 
Uh, but essentially, you know, there's, there's great interest in psychedelics and there's lots of different uh, organizations around and there's lots of community organizations which can uh, you, you can look into and they can help you have support and structure and community uh, for exploring the psychedelic world. There's also, you know, uh, it's sort of like a brother and sister team. There's a related sort of shamanic community, which because of the nature of the beast and sometimes these uh, these ceremonies uh, can be, if not if not illegal, they're still sort of in a gray area of the law. And so there's sort of an underground shamanic community, but there's definitely a global community that does these substances. But there's a whole different set and setting, to use Tim Leary's old term about about taking psychedelics. There's a whole different context that they're done in. You know, there's traditionally, uh, it's, it's not necessarily something that you just take and that, you know, you're on a drug or you don't have any support mechanism or you're doing recreationally. Shamanic substances essentially are best done as a part of a ritual uh, or as Niall said earlier, as part of a container. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the great things that I've seen uh, come out of the ayahuasca movement uh, and be taken up globally is not just the idea of ayahuasca itself, but the idea of ceremony, the idea that there's a facilitator, whether that's a shaman or not. And in the West, there's a whole generation now of shamanic facilitators that don't necessarily have the experience of, of indigenous shamans that, you know, from an early age they're chosen and they're on very arduous dieters and reducing what foods they eat to increase their sensitivity to work with plants. Uh, and they might train the shamans for literally decades to, to get the requisite experience to feel like they can help heal people. But there has been in the last 10 or 20 years or so a whole generation of sort of neo-shamanic facilitators that are on the shamanic path and are learning and doing their best to be facilitators of the medicine and to hold space, to to hold a, a container for ceremony itself and the idea of an ayahuasca circle or things like that. It's now transcending just the thing that you take. It's the idea of the community coming together, having this container of a night where you take this substance, this sacred shamanic medicine as part of the community. And you go on your individual journey and you have your intent. The, you know, it might be working on an individual healing or something you want to work on. Uh, but there's a great synergy and a great sort of cohesion when people um, come together in a, in a ritual and do this work versus just taking it alone. So there's um, a growth in both the psychedelic communities and the shamanic communities, and there's a lot of overlap, but there's a slightly different ways that it can be approached. Yeah, and that kind of reminds me of thinking of like the LSD revolution of the 60s, you know, where we had people dropping acid in Golden Gate Park, but it was such a culture that was so new to a sacrament that it had had the time to learn how to work with it in a shamanistic practice mm-hmm. because it was such a short-lived history of that chemical. So, you know, LSD, which is the chemical component of, is very similar to the morning glory seeds. And, you know, indigenous culture would have usage of those seeds over hundreds, if not thousands of years, where they would have had the time to learn how to shamanize it properly and then put it in that container. So the person taking it gets way more out of it and, you know, has a much more high rate of having either an expansion consciousness or healing so that's kind of yeah that's well said i wonder um i mean it's bad enough that the the war on drugs and the demonization has uh has caused enough problems just by making these substances taboo and harder to get but i wonder how many generations it'll take to kind of you know like even now I, you know, people get bad trips for different reasons, but I, I often wonder how much just the fact that in the back of your head, you know, you're 
you're breaking some fucking law that could send you to jail. Like that's got to play some sort of a role in in your experience. You're not like taking yeah, it them a, fruit it creates a negative. It definitely creates a negative imprint in people. But again, that's really why I think the shamanic community globally is uh, so important as well, because you have a sense of well-being and belonging, and you know that you know with the right container and if you're with the right people. Uh, you're doing something which is exercising your own right to consciousness, but you're also partaking of substances which have a lineage that goes back to indigenous cultures and connects to the planet and to all these tribes around the planet. And you're plugging back into something which is sacred. And it's not about drugs. It's not about breaking the law. It's about your own right to plug back into sacred. I mean, what a world we live in where the sacredness of life itself is illegal where it's like, you know, they say that the law should not be able to differentiate between the container which contains the substance and the substance itself. So if we have uh, NNDMT and 5-MeO-DMT in our own brains, how is that any different from the toad? You know, how is that any different from plants which contain these substances? And in a sense, we're just sort of accentuating or deepening our own relationship with with these these pathways of the divine. Um, but it, it's definitely something which if you're part of a shamanic lineage, it is a medicine culture, and it's a culture sometimes which may have rules, it may have structure, it may have ways that you are meant to um, accurately and sort of more honorably work with these medicines. And there can be, especially around things like ayahuasca, there's dietary rules, there's ways to maximize your approach to the medicine, there's things to watch out for. And all of that means preparation. It means you have to approach it in a more mature way, in a more respectful way, and that you're also um, connected to a lineage that is teaching you the way. And so it's really coming back into that global family of, of, of shamanic practitioners. How much is the... the yeah. f- and that- Go ahead, Miles. Go ahead, man. Oh, I was just going to say, and that's kind of what we're trying to highlight per episode on the show is, for example, like Octavio, who's the highlight of the first episode, is somebody that, you know... is. He's technically a Westerner. I mean, he's a Mexican, and his primary um, language is, is Mexican as a ge- Western-trained general practitioner. But he has worked with the indigenous community, so he's kind of had that, I guess you want to say, training or maybe even initiation into the indigenous people who have had once a legacy with the shaman. That's kind of a, an, a good thing to highlight and try and focus on per episode is that kind of that dynamic where each episode hopefully will focus on somebody who may be a Westerner but has done it through the lineage of the indigenous community. Right, right. That's a good point. So how, how much is yeah. the, with the increase of all this uh, <clears throat> this interest in, in, in psychedelics and entheogens, how, how has the festival, the whole festival scene played a role in that or, or are they totally connected and they're, they're going alongside each other like things like Burning Man and these other music festivals? Like I've... I've only been to to one recently, but it does remind me of sort of a neo shamanistic thing with people like the with the music and the the bass and the beats well, and the, the just the whole environment there. It's definitely connected, but you know where all that springs from. Basically, the whole modern um, festival conscious festival communities in the Burning Man and all the other like global festivals. You get a boom in Portugal. Um, all through Europe, they have electronic music festivals. Here in Australia, they do. America, there's huge festivals as well. But that is all a direct legacy, essentially, of Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters doing the acid tests. Uh-huh. The acid tests in the 60s were the first example of this 
reclamation of this archaic ritual of trance dancing yeah. to like strobe lights and to you know electronic music or amplified music and to come back into a tribal group gathering that's the real legacy of the acid test and that was you know through acid but it then went to goa in india a lot of the hippies that were turned on to lsd in the late 60s went over to india and goa that actually formed the whole Goa electronic music scene, which then came back to London. And then there was the second uh, Summer of Love in 88, 89 over there. That was then carried over to America in the early 90s and became, by the mid to late 90s, the rave movement. And the, the successive waves over generational time of um, you know people embracing altered consciousness and that has now blossomed into the global festival culture that we see all around the planet. So these places can definitely be sort of uh, containers for not just not just altered uh, well definitely altered states, but not just that you take something to go in an altered state. If you've been to Burning Man, it's an altered state in itself. Yeah, yeah. It's the reclamation of what. Terence McKenna used to call it the archaic revival. Here's a culture which goes out there onto the playa and they build everything, they take everything away again. But when, when you're there, it induces an altered state because it's outside the norms of society. It's outside the normal parameters and it's a ritual. It's a, it's a giant shamanic ritual. And this is the thing. Shamanism isn't you know just contained in substances. It's a state of mind. It's a state of being. Mm. And so when we go in what's called liminal zones or zones which are outside the normal parameters of culture which is really work orientated and nine to five and it's got you know white picket fence type type ideology to it you go outside of that and then you end up in these liminal zones where you get to express yourself you get to make art you get to dance to like make love i don't know it's like it's these zones of freedom you know it's these zones which actually go all the way back to what indigenous cultures would do they had that need to connect here in Australia with the Australian Aborigines. They would have these corroborees, which were these intertribal gatherings, you know, every year or so at different seasonal junctures. And there were parties. There were parties and celebration and feasts, just like the pagans have around certain, um, uh, you know, times of year, which are celebrating seasonal shifts. And in the West, all those seasonal shifts have been, you know, subverted and turned into sugar fueled festivals celebrating, you know, Easter Bunny or Father Christmas or things like that, they've totally made it into mercantile gift-giving and money, 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 when originally it's all about the planet. And so when you look at festival culture, it's still about the planet. You go outside the cities, you go back to nature, you celebrate. You celebrate the joy of being alive and of coming together as a community. So it's definitely related. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Yeah, I mean, that's the feeling I got is it was more of a gathering than a... Go ahead, Niles. Oh, sorry, man. I was just going to say one thing about festivals is that they're quite kind of a pilgrimage as well. And, you know, nothing with great, you know, reward doesn't come with a little bit of kind of risk and trial and and tough work, I would say. So I've found that anytime I've been at a festival, there's been interesting kind of synchronistic things that have happened in life because you made the effort to get there. So that's kind of just another layer of the icing on the cake to add to what rack just said so go ahead man yeah definitely no i was gonna say it's it's it feels like they're more than just a a venue for you know for using antigens or something like that or experiencing an altered state it really is an environment where people can be be themselves and be free and 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 uh get together with other sort of loving like-minded people It, it just you know you leave all the garbage at home and that's what it felt like for me i've only been to like one of them but so, so Rack, can you can you um, 
get give us an example like can we get a little bit granular on 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 somebody's experience like an experience of healing or what a typical experience of healing might go through for these because it's not people just going down there and and uh and having these experiences there are there are profound changes like like uh you know worldview changes and uh huge life changes from these can you give us a couple examples so people understand the the uh sort of the importance of it the other thing is like all the different shamanic entheogens can have varied effects you know um the 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 subject of episode one which is the sonoran desert toad is pretty much like the tyrannosaurus rex of entheogens it's like (laughs) the king of them all in the sense that it's it's so incredibly profound it's probably the strongest uh entheogen on the planet and it's not it's not it's not a macho thing to say that you know well, they're, they're all initiations, but this one is a very specific initiation. It's, it's you know, I mentioned before, it's like the the, the white light mystic tunnel. This this sense of um, rejoining the source or this oceanic sort of sense of unconditional love, and and these are just words. And obviously, on your own internal experience with this medicine, you you will have your own words for it. But in, invariably, it's a sense of the divine, and this is something which is so, you know, censored and shied away from and culturally almost unrecognized anymore, this sense of the divine. We can say things like psychedelics, we can say things like medicines, we can say indigenous and all these other buzzwords. Mm-hmm. But if you get to the, the heart of it and you say, well, what, what's the experience of the, of the Sonoran Desert Toad? It's an experience of the divine and not just external to you, but internal to you, that you are a divine vehicle for the expression of divine energies on the earth. And that can really put a lot of people off. They're used to people talking about ayahuasca and seeing visions and seeing maybe snakes or seeing fractal geometries like a DMT vision mm-hmm. or experiencing entities or seeing madre ayahuasca or having an incredible healing experience and healing their cancer or tumor or their emotional relationship with their parents. And that's all good and well. But, I mean, each of these different uh, antigens will have a varied effect. And, you know, I, I find that the Sonoran Desert Toad is the most profound medicine that I've experienced in a shamanic setting, that the medicine that it gives is this reconnection to source. And that, that is an incredible healing uh, experience that then trickles down through your body, through your consciousness, and can have a, a somatic body effect. I call it like God's factory reset. It can often uh, seem to flush clean uh, your whole body back to sort of a, a natural state of being. Um, uh, and you know, but but essentially, I mean, people have to be ready for these substances. They're they're not just for the average person off the street because it's so shocking to the ideology of the person who takes them, which is why so many of these substances have cultures which teach us how to use them and can can prepare us, you know, for what it may entail. Uh, they can be quite shocking, you know, because it reveals that the world is bigger than we thought and that there is more to it than we thought. And that, that in itself can have a big effect on people's psyches. Yeah. Huh. Uh, I never considered. Yeah, and I mean, oh. that's, that's, that's a good thing to highlight about, you know, the show too, is as documentary filmmakers, I mean, we're trying to comment on how there's cons with these things as well. You know, nothing's perfect. And the shamanistic community has its strengths and its weaknesses. And, you know, all the medicines are being commoditized in the modern world and so that has negatives along with it as well so you know we're, we're there to kind of show the beauty and amazing things with these things because like rack has highlighted i mean the, the esoteric is what's on in the inside and i kind of think as the esoteric as being for like the jedi and you know the exoteric is what's on the outside 
side. So we can only really show the exoteric on camera, mm-hmm. but ultimately the show is kind of maybe a, a, a piece to document these things in a very kind of cinematic visual way for people that are interested in seeing what some of these experiences look like for people exoterically on the outside. But then ultimately it's like the matrix, right? Like where you can't, you don't have any idea what it's really like until you directly experience it for yourself. Yeah. I think you did a good job though at, at, at showing people's exoteric, uh, or, or their, uh, their esoteric experience. I mean, it, it it definitely came across that these people that in the in your first episode at least had profound um potentially healing experiences for sure oh yeah yeah i mean absolutely and that's the thing is that we tried to show the seriousness of the medicine and again like how it's it's there's no messing around with this stuff you know it's not recreational and it's very serious stuff but if you go into it with the right set and setting and the right mindset and you know engage your kind of like to use the term like your will to want to either expand your consciousness or heal yourself from some sort of ailment that you've had if you if you kind of have those parts you can have the most kind of beautiful life transforming experience of your life and that's kind of what we i mean that's basically what we had on the episode we had one gentleman in the episode who um you know took probably a little bit more than he needed to and again it's not like you can overdose on this stuff unless you have some horrible heart condition or something but he did take more than he needed to so we had one person that had a very trying experience on the show because of that yeah but you know it's like that's the dynamic is like like it's a it, that's why it's also good to do it with somebody that's of you know high moral character and is an honorable person that's worked with the medicine and knows like the whole dynamics and the intricacies with it so that you have that beautiful kind of life transforming experience. And that's something that, you know, the show is not only kind of a piece of filmmaking that I'm extremely proud of. It's also something that, you know, after we were done making the show, I tried the medicine as well. So it was absolutely a completely life transforming experience for me. And that's not documented in the show itself, but it's just something to kind of speak to the direct life experience I had. That's, you know, a beautiful thing because you can only kind of really ultimately speak about your own direct experiences. And that's, you know, I was yeah, just going to ask you that too. If if you did that, yeah, 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 I did, I did, and and that's that's the beauty of shamanism is it's like you don't need anybody, you don't need any metal men between you and something greater. And I almost think of the metaphor of like you've either got your computer that's just air gapped, it's not connected to anything, or else you've got your com- computer that's connected to the internet. So when you take one of these things and you do it in the proper respect and proper set and setting in the proper context, it's like you're suddenly connected to the astral internet. And you can have a beautiful, you know, kind of divine transcendent experience. So I did get the, I was, I did have the pleasure of, of doing the medicine at the end of the kind of filming of the final finale of the episode. And it was incredibly life transforming. I'll probably do a whole kind of, like you guys do on the show, a whole kind of side trip report as to like all the kind of in, information that I got. Because I had an amazing kind of what's called a Ken show moment of this kind of gnosis of amazing kind of many downloads that happen in a short amount of time because it's quite short. I mean, it only lasts for, it depends on how much you take, but it only lasts for probably five or 10 minutes. At least for me, it did. Oh, yeah. um, so it's even, relatively you know, life. transforming. It's even yeah, shorter than a very short amount of time. Is that a question? Um, yeah, that's crazy. It seems like those powerful yeah, ones and, you know, don't seem to last long. Go ahead. Man. Yeah. Yeah, it's very short. It's very, very short. I mean, I think that if you look at DMT, it looks like we lost Rackman. I might, we might want to add him back to the call. But um, 
if you look at DMT in terms of, obviously it's in, in, endogenous to our brain, but in terms of the kind of varying degrees of DMT, I mean, there's different kind of formations of penaline and, and dimethyltryptamine that are secreted naturally within the brain. Yeah. And those are things that happen when we're in like sleep, for example, and like REM sleep. But if you look at NNDMT, which is the DMT that Terrence McKenna oftentimes talked about, you know, that's a very visual form of dimethyltryptamine. And then 5-MeO DMT, which is what's in the toad, is a very different experience. And it's very different in terms of the amount that you take and the experience that you have. And then Octavio also has a separation between 5-MeO-DMT and the toad medicine because the toad is the natural form of this 5-methoxy and N-dimethyltryptamine. So there's almost like a third differentiation there where he advocates that he has a separation between 5-MeO and toad medicine. So if you, yeah, that's that's a kind of dynamic where there's so much to kind of learn about this stuff and so much to kind of understand in the different modalities and different kind of uh, balances of these of these earth earth medicines. So, um, do we want to add rack back? Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I, I did once, and he's okay. gone. He's gone again. So I'll try again here and see. So oh, Niles is bulldoze his house. Is that okay. ex- is that experience still pretty clear in your mind uh, after a bit of time has gone by? You know, it is. And I, I did a kind of download of my conversation um, with some gals that I've had on my podcast who are really good friends that are related to my other documentary project. Yeah. So probably the to that is at some point I will make that public. I will publicly share like my whole experience. So I'll, I'll send that to you guys when it's ready. And oh, yeah, I know you sure. get a lot of kick out of it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. You can only again, you can only really talk about your own experiences. And if somebody kind of feels the call to these things or is interested in these things, it's good to obviously do the research and see what kind of pro and con experiences others have had. But when you get the kind of firsthand, you know, around the campfire conversation of what somebody else experienced, it's nice because it builds that kind of camaraderie and that fellowship to know that people have had beautiful life-changing experiences off these things that have either, like we highlighted before, there's kind of only really two reasons why you'd want to take this medicine. And it's not for recreational purposes. It's not for just tripping out for fun. It's for either... A, healing, which is, you know, coming into wholeness, like, so we're not like George Gurdjieff says, where we're just machines, we are born and machines, we are, we will die, where we just go to our nine to five jobs every day and repeat until we die. It's like, we realize there's more to life than that. And that's part of kind of the healing process is understanding what it is to be a human being, but also the expansion of your consciousness, you know, your consciousness being your kind of way that you see the world and the, you know, way that you interact with the world. And Mark Passio has a definition of consciousness where it's your ability and awareness to recognize patterns and meanings both externally in the world and internally within yourself and sadly today you know we have a lot of people that the consciousness is so low it's almost you know unbelievable how low yeah yeah so we have a lot of people that kind of could use these direct experiences it's all about your direct experience yeah yeah well we keep we keep losing rack here um but i keep trying to get him back are you there now rack Okay, he keeps dropping off. Niles, do you want to just um, do you want to mention some of the other uh, or how people can watch the these documentaries? They go to your website, which is obviously uh, uh, in the show notes. They can click on that. But can you talk a little bit about the logistics of your your sites and how to how to get this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we had a little bit of technical problems here, but I think we got the gist of it. And obviously. So yeah, Rack is so eloquent about speaking on this. I kind of just let him do his thing a bit. So it's, <laughs> it's nice that it worked out that way. But um, yeah, it's like, um, so basically the show is available at shamansoftheglobalvillage.com. 
com. That's kind of the home base that we have for it. That's yeah. the official site. And as something where the subject matter of the show is so kind of paradigm destroying, you know, it's I almost want to say that it's a little ahead of its time, this show. So it's not like you're going to be seeing it blasted across, you know, Amazon.com or Netflix anytime soon. So it's something that was created just independently by Iraq and I as this, you know, series. I mean, we made it for very little money. We made it for less money than, you know, the typical film uses on their food budget in a single day. <laughs> and as somebody that's worked in and out of Hollywood, I could personally tell you that, you know, there's a lot of money spent on film sets every day. And for uh, somebody that's an independent filmmaker that's just trying to always work on more kind of conscious projects, my background in Hollywood kind of really showed me what, what I could do and what I what not to do, especially in terms of money spent. Mm -hmm. So it was something that was made for very little money. And, um, you know, we've we've... It's something that as a bottom-up product, it's basically like something where we're just doing it as a direct-to-audience thing. So you can always be watched there. And it's something that we are you know, having as a, as a paid download or a rental because there's kind of a significant cost to make, make each episode. So um, it's something where uh, it's nice to make it a sustainable venture where we can just have a little bit of a, a cost for people to rent the show or to purchase the show. But, you know, I want people should really think of this as kind of like a, a community support thing where think of it as kind of a donation to help kind of keep the process going where we're just kind of as documentary filmmakers trying to show these um uh experiences for people and there's so many different kind of earth medicines that are also different that we're trying to from show to show really use this as a nice piece of not only cinema that's beautifully shot and well documented and well you know directed hopefully that's kind of always my intention and is the main person behind the camera but then with kind of racks you know knowledge base and ties to the community and obviously like eloquence, eloquence talking about the material as the kind of guy in front of the camera. I think it's just a beautiful kind of combination of our kind of synergistic skill sets. So you can always see it there. And, um, you know, you can find it at social media as well. But, um, you know, it's it's nice to kind of go onto these platforms and share it as well, like your guys' show. And these kind of there's so much great media online these days because the internet has just changed everything yeah. so for us it's kind of like a product where it's like a book you know where we've written our book and then we have to basically just kind of go around and kind of share it just to kind of get the word out is it something that's very much a bottom-up product yeah, so yeah yeah I'll definitely do yeah. our best to spread it as far as we can um what what so i, I mean yeah renty it's fair that's sort of value for value you know you watch a show cost you guys some money throw yeah. a couple bucks your way and uh is there any sort of monthly subscription people can get on to kind of keep getting uh, the new one sent to them? No, I mean, you know, there is, um, we might have some, we might have it on some services potentially down the line that'll be some subscription services that would be elsewhere, but you can always watch it at the official site. So that's kind of the, the kind of best way to go direct to source to do it as kind of a donation that really just kind of helps fund future episodes, you know, because, I mean, if we do this show, obviously it's something where we very much want to, uh, go around the world with it and not only just show people the, you know, document the experiences authentically, but also go to the original countries where these sacraments kind of originated. Like, for example, you know, on the second episode, we're probably looking to do it with um, a medicine called aboga, ibogaine, which has huge healing properties, where if somebody is hooked on some, you know, junk narcotic like methamphetamine mm -hmm. or heroin, you know, if you, again, if you have the ability and want and will to heal yourself, because ultimately you can only heal you, you know, we are ultimately the medicine and the, the earth medicine is only the kind of like the catalyst to allow you to heal yourself. A boga can be a huge, huge, amazing thing for like curing, you know, heroin addiction on one aboga use. So again, it depends on the individual. It depends on the experience. It depends on the container. 
there. But so that's, for example, something that we would shoot in Africa, in Gabon, Africa. So there'd be quite a, you know, cost as an independent show to get out there and do it. So, you know, it's um, we're taking it one step at a time. I mean, it's just as an independently made series, it's something that we basically have to just kind of do episode per episode whenever we can. Right, right. <laughs> There's no set. What what about uh, some of the other uh, stuff? Oh, the book series again. What about some of the other stuff you're working on there, Niles? Yeah, well, I mean, this show is kind of recognized dynamic and as something that he kind of conceptualized, and you know, I kind of helped him make, and we have the perfect skill sets to counter it. It's 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 kind of one of the main primary projects. I also have a documentary film I'm working on that I think I last time I chatted with you guys I hinted on, which yep. is something I'm doing with a philosopher and esotericist named Neil Kramer. Yeah, yeah which is called Transmutation. And actually, that's another project that's a documentary film that we're just finishing. So that's yeah. my next project. Yeah, it looks that cool. Coincidentally, I actually... Yeah, thank you, man. I had started it prior to the show, and because documentaries can take so long to make, it's actually going to be concluded. It's going to be done next year, early next year, so very soon. So that can be seen. At, you can view kind of the info for that at transmutationfilm.com. So those are kind of my two products that I'm... Or products. I sound, now I sound like a capitalist. <laughs> my two kind of... Slap pieces guy. of creative creativity that I'm, you know, making as my primary kind of things as an independent filmmaker these days. But um, yeah, you know, and I think that's the dynamic these days is just making stuff that you kind of find a connection with people or a connection with an audience, and you almost go straight to the audience. And I don't want to say completely bypass the middleman these days, but create stuff that people are interested in. And the only way you're going to create content like the content that I'm doing, which is hopefully has high production value values with really kind of leading edge, almost ahead of its time content is to do that kind of, you know, independently. So you see kind of the best stuff from the bottom up, as we very well know, with things like your guys' show or podcasts. It's about, you know, grassroots. I, th I think that value for value or on-demand programming is a future anyway. Like, I mean, sure, Netflix and Amazon Prime and things like that might be good outlets, but I mean... The cable dinosaurs die and fast, you know, people are unplugging like crazy and it's just a matter of time until, you know, people are going to pick and choose what little outlets instead of having a hundred dollar a month bill for cable, they're going to spend their hundred dollars a month on this little, some video content here and some audio content yeah. there. And yeah. I think you're out, you guys are out in front of it, man. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, fellas. I mean, it's always nice to talk to you. I appreciate, you know, what you guys are doing. I know that we've shared commonalities and people that have started podcasts as well about just the, you know, community outreach and the nice dynamic of doing something that you've created yourself that's kind of a conscious thing that allows you to kind of spread your wings and meet new people and kind of connect with community. So that's something that my work I'm hoping to always do as well. And I think this show is a, is a nice vehicle to do, even though it's kind of a new piece of um, you know, intellectual, it's kind of new content that, um, you know, just have to kind of get out as, um, as the word spreads kind of from the community. Right on. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Thanks, man. So, hey, I tried to yeah. get Rack on a couple times here, but it failed yeah. again. So you'll have to yeah. say, say bye to him for us and, uh, and thank him for coming on and, and, and thank you for coming on as well. Yeah, thank you for having us, man. I'm sure that, yeah, it was nice to get both of us on, even with our kind of slight technical difficulties. But we really appreciate it, man. And thanks for uh, doing what you guys are doing, as always. It's it's a pleasure anytime I talk to both of you. All right, thanks a lot, Nice. Next, next time we'll have to do in studio. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I know you guys have done a lot of work on your studio, so it'd be great to see it one day. <laughs> All right. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Thanks All a right. lot, Niles. Okay. okay. Cheers, fellas. Bye. Bye. Well, despite some questionable audio, uh, that was okay. That was a good one. That was that was a great chat. Yeah, it was a good it drives movie. Me nuts those little audio hiccups. Yeah, just like picking away at the. It's like if you just sat here and poked me in the head the whole time. Yeah, like, it is election night. I can't do anything. Oh, that could have something to do with it. Oh, right? just the amount Everybody's of people using the internet. Refre- that's people refreshing. Oh, maybe refresh, refresh, refresh. Maybe eh? <laughs> just millions of people refreshing. <laughs> Actually, you're probably right. Oh, it's like huge. Yeah. Way bigger than Super Bowl. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And he was the American guy, right? Because our feed yeah, was fine and Australia right. was fine. That's right. Huh. Yeah. Crazy. Oh, we live on the best internet street in Alberta. Do you? I don't know. Yeah. Well, probably in I'm Canada. Just I don't I mean, know. It doesn't, oh, it doesn't get much better than that, I don't think. It's that cable connection, and I'm like, there's only like four people on it. <laughs> So, yeah, that was good. It was a really good episode. Like, yeah. very, very uh, real. Big thanks to Niles and Rack for coming on the show. Any comments before we wrap it up, Michael, on your fly-on-the-wall experience? No, it was just great being here, looking around the studio. You got you guys have a lot of cool stuff to check out. And listening to Niles, he's just got, he's, they're both just a wealth of information and yeah, it's, it's good to see life from that perspective. Exactly. It gives us hope sort of, right? I mean, there's yeah. a whole awakening going on in the background that if you're not really aware of it, you won't see it. Um, so I got a question for you, Mike. D- Darren and I were traveling through the States and he got to go to his little um, dispensary. And I was like, they're going to have this for mushrooms soon. I said no. They'll have not like no, a little no like psilocybin dispensary. Not different not. strains of mushrooms and all that. How long do you think it'll take for that? I don't know. It's hard to say because, you know, the marijuana was taken out for a reason. The marijuana was taken, sorry, the marijuana was taken out for a reason. So bringing it back could only also be for a reason. Now, you know, I don't know. I don't see mushrooms in our lifetime. Yeah, I don't either. I don't know. I didn't see pot in our lifetime. I mean, we shouldn't, we should just be happy with that. I mean, fucking seriously, it's only it's only full legal in like three or four states. I mean, Florida got the medical vote tonight. So shout out to Adam Loyal. He's all excited about that. <laughs> it would be nice to see if it wasn't criminal. Yeah. At least, yeah, decriminalization, I think, would be a victory. Yeah. Would be a victory in our lifetime. Yeah. So I can get a fine. I could pay the fine. Everybody wins except me. I'm on 150. So, would you smoke your DMT then? Or what if I look it up right now and it's legal? Alleged DMT. It's not legal. (laughs) It's not? You've already looked into that? I'm not an idiot. It's a Schedule One narcotic, I'm pretty sure. In Canada? Yeah. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it is. Hmm. So, I stick to my medicine. It's legal. I have a card in my wallet. It says, fuck off. Look, it just pops up right away. Right, right. Where do you get DMT? <laughs> oh, and people constantly comment on the YouTube episodes. Any YouTube episode we does that have DMT in the description, people are comment in the comments trying to sell you DMT. No way. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Send a, send us your cash. I guarantee it's mostly scams. You think so? Oh yeah. People get in that mode and they're like, "I'll oh, be it all." Probably sending bitcoins, or you're on the dark web, and then all of a sudden you're fucking fifty dollars less lighter. Canada DMT is Schedule Three in Ooh, Canada. That's not bad. It's like a slap on the wrist. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I can't even get a joint into you. 
No. Anyway, big thanks to Niles and Rack for coming on the show. Um, check out grabamerica.ca slash support and help us upgrade the internet so we don't get those annoying cutouts. Um, seriously, though, help us stay ad sponsor affiliate bullshit free. Sign up for a monthly subscription or do a one-time donation. Spam grab. What else? Review us on iTunes. Review the show. Please. Just go into the show notes and do all the stuff that we ask you to do there. Yeah. Seriously. There's a whole list. There's a doobie, 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 do list. That's right. If you did everything on the list, it would take you like 15 minutes. You know how long we spend every week putting this show together for you? <laughs> you can spend the 15 minutes. <clears throat> I think that's it, eh? Yeah, that's it, man. All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>